This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at the BatmanUniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. episode 170 for February MMXIX. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by... Nerd Flicks and Chill is a podcast that discusses your favorite topics from the world of the nerdy. From Game of Thrones to Star Wars and beyond, Nerd Flicks and Chill is your place for show recaps, film reviews, and general conversations about all things geek. Be sure to check us out on Stitcher and on iTunes, where you can subscribe and leave us reviews. You can also follow us on Twitter at NerdflixChill and let us know your opinions because we want to hear from you. Thank you, and may the Force be with you because the night is dark and full of terrors. 
Barcode the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, this time around, I am doing some more JLA comics. And so, of course, I had this person invite himself yet again onto my show. So please welcome back, or don't, who knows, Tom Panarese. The Irredeemable Shag. The Irredeemable <laughs> Oh, yeah. You always get on him for inviting himself, as you say. But here you are it's, once again. You have me on retainer. I didn't yeah, invite myself. Yeah, that's what you told the social medias. That's true. And I said that basically I will villainize you however I see fit. So if I need to cast you in this terrible light, then I'll do it. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Well, you I was thinking about doing too. a little warm-up game for you. Are you right. Are you game for this little warm-up? Sure. It's Kiss, Mary Kill. Oh, okay. Are you still okay with it? <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, That's I'm going fine. to do people who are not as delectable, might not be the wrong, that might not be the right word, but people that we're about to face in these JLA issues. So, okay. Kiss, Mary Kill. Triumph. JJ <laughs> Thunder, I think his name is, JJ Thunder. And. Let's go Zariel. Kiss, Mary kill. Kiss, JJ. Oh, okay. Mary Zariel, kill triumph. Kill triumph. Okay. I think if I personally, I think I might be a little bit in line with you. Yeah, because JJ was, or he is, once we do this, a little obnoxious, but probably mm -hmm. not as obnoxious as triumph. And then Zariel is, you know, take him or leave him. So I think I would probably mm. go with you on that. Triumph would just whine about how he missed out on things, and you, know, you just don't need that in your life. Yeah, it does. It goes into that a great deal, actually, which is one of my discussion questions. But okay. yeah, this has been pretty. It's been a pretty interesting ride. Uh, this this story that we'll do, the Crisis Times Five. But it's been a while since we've mm -hmm. done JLA. Do you remember what they were doing last time we met up with them? Um, the last time you and I talked about anything related to JLA, um, whether it was JLA Titans, prior to that, it was the Shaggy Man storyline, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. 26 was like our army at war, and so it was JLA versus yeah. General Eileen, yeah. Eiling, yeah, because yeah. I have the trade in front of me and I'm flipping through it. I think that's what I see. So Yeah, and I flipped back because it has been a while. I feel like it's mm -hmm. probably been half a year since we've done, perhaps more, because, of course, I had five months of No Man's Land and then Titans and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was one of the last episodes that you did before your No Man's Land coverage, sure. yeah. if I'm not mistaken, because I don't think you broke No Man's Land for, for the Titans thing. Yeah, 
No, I don't. No, I, yeah, I tried to stay a nice little consistent thing. And it yeah. was interesting because there were two prologues for, which was weird because they were at the end, two prologues for JLA 26. And one of them was that our man became a replacement yes. for John Jones. And so that's an important detail that'll come up what we're doing now. And then the second prologue actually set up JJ Thunder. Though mm-hmm. at the time I had no idea who this kid was, but it all becomes more clear once we get into JLA 28. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't have too much. I think, you know, I was trying to think of whether I wanted to drop the opened can of worms of toxic masculinity and, <laughs> and the Gillette oh. commercial. And I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I'm feeling it tonight. I don't know if I, if like this is the place for it. Uh, what, what do you, what do you think? I don't know the, the topic. It's the topic of toxic masculinity has come up, it, like it floats around the social media and the internet anyway. Sure. And um, I'm trying to remember the Gillette commercial because I saw it. People flipped out about it. Of course. Just remind me really quickly what the premise was because I've watched it and it's. Yeah. So, well, it basically goes through different scenes and things like that. And there's a voiceover and, you know, asking, is this really the best a man can get? And, and it basically mm-hmm. is a call to arms for men to be responsible and, you know, teach the younger generation to actually be men uh, in the sense of like good men that are treating women kindly, treating mm-hmm. uh, other people kindly, not just women. And you see different ways that this might manifest negatively, uh, like, the toxic masculinity, masculinity mm-hmm. basically bullying and things like that, and so how can how can that basically change? So it's just a it's a call to arms, I would say. Yeah, yeah, and I remember watching. I was like, you know, kind of good for them. I mean, granted, it is an ad, so you know, the, you you take those with what you can. There's always these ads that try to like um, be more than just like you know an advertisement for razor blades and things like that. But at sure. the same time, the message is. The message is a good one. I mean, there is an issue in our culture with this, and it's this really becoming more and more outdated idea of, even if it's just not toxic masculinity, this idea of men not exhibiting any feeling except for, or men men not allowing them to be vulnerable or emotional in certain ways in front of other people. And... <coughs> Listeners, which there are way more listeners on your podcast than my podcast. You have to excuse my coughing. I'm obviously coming down with some sort of cold, and I'm going to try to keep it to a minimum. No, but I think about I was thinking about this because um, there's been some stuff in the news lately. A couple weeks as as of this recording, a couple of weeks prior to this, there was a a rally um, in Washington D.C., and there was this picture of this this kid that went around. He was wearing wearing a red hat and kind of smirking in the face of a, of a Native American protester. And I'm not going to go too far into it, but it made me think of this conversation about toxic masculinity mainly because as I was watching this happen, like I saw, I, I saw a lot of people in this kid that like I had taught in the prior years. Like there's this there's this tendency in it, and and, and it, it does tend to happen. You know, I'm not going to say it's it's just germane to like white. Boys and men, but there is quite a bit of, of white male toxic masculinity out there. And I saw him and I saw all these kind of smirky kids that I used to teach uh, in, a, in a previous school that I taught at who were very much of the, I can get away with acting the way I do. 
because you know you can't touch me you know et cetera et cetera and and I see and I would see a lot of of really really nasty behavior on the part of boys toward girls and things and this idea that that like you know they could kind of strut around because um, the attitude at at my former place of employment really was a boys will be boys type of thing when it came to disciplining a lot of a lot of boys. I saw it, and it was it wasn't just like a class that you know I saw it from the kind of the rich preppy kids and the, for lack of a better word, like down low rednecks and things like that. You know this idea that like you know that that typical kind of be a man type of of scenario. And it attitude, not scenario, attitude. And it really, it, it does, it still bugs me because, you know, I am the, I am the father of a 11 year old boy who is a really sweet kid and, you know, who is starting, who is in middle school. And he's, you know, you worry as somebody who himself like put up with a lot of, a lot of terrible things in, in um, junior high school and high school and then even college, you worry about like, you know, does, is that like a self-perpetuating thing? It's like he going to have to deal with the same things and he's doing very well. But like, you know, where as a father do you teach appropriate reactions in public to things? And like, you know, you, you can tell him like, you know, it's okay to cry, but at the same time, you know, do you have to draw a line of like, okay, maybe you're crying too much and, and things like that. And, and, and I, you know, it, 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 there's a lot like, especially when you're a parent, like, it's just the pressure on you and like the, the confusion that's basically like it's a constant state of confusion of whether or not you're doing the right thing. And, and I keep coming back to two, um, the two uh, sources uh, that are really, really worth watching. There is a documentary called uh, crap. It's either like this. I think it's like the mask you live in or the skin we live in or something. And I will look it up in a moment, which is the sequel to a, feminist documentary called misrepresentation that came out a few years ago. The other is a great, uh, it's called the mask you live in. And it's all about essentially toxic masculinity. It's all about like what we tell boys as far as emotions are concerned and how damaging that is to them. It came out a few years ago. The other is a spoken word poem by, by a, um, and I'm going to mispronounce his name and I apologize. It's Guante. G-U-A-N-T-E. It is called 10 Responses to the Phrase Man Up, and it is a great, great spoken word poem. You can find it on YouTube, uh, courtesy of Button Poetry. Um, I will warn you, there is foul language in it, but it just it is one of those things where it's like, you know, they're really good examples, and I guess this commercial is as well, of like men turning around and saying, look, um, we were raised to you know, puff out our chests and put people down and put women down and call, call anybody who call any boy or man, other male who was sensitive or upset about something or, you know, didn't want to, you know, didn't want to participate something, a, a wimp or a synonym for a cat, um, you know, or a woman or something, you know, the, all these, these ideas that like, you know, somehow, you know, and and it's just people finally admitting, like you know, hey, this really needs to stop. So, off my soapbox. I hope that made sense. Yeah, yeah. Have you had any discussions in class? Like, has this popped up? And what do your students say about either the commercial or toxic masculinity itself? It pops up sometimes in the context of some of the literature we're reading. 
in the past, this is why, like when I was bringing up the whole the Cole Covington high school kid thing, the, I had to deal with students who were very much like him who would basically try to troll the people in class by saying like outlandish things. So the, so I had to like repeatedly shut discussions down because like I didn't want to take sides or get mad. So I would just kind of move things on, get things back on topic. But I would hear them and they would say these things like on purpose so they could get a rise out of somebody in the class because they were being trolls. And so they would say things like, oh, there's no such thing as male privilege. And, you know, um, they would come up with false equivalences for everything. They they put down things like feminism or any anything with women's rights. I had one kid literally compare the KKK, the Black Lives Matter to the KKK. Um, I had some really just really obnoxious boys in this class a few years ago. It was and it was it, it didn't hurt, it didn't help that it was the year of the election. Yeah, so um, the last couple of years, the place where I am, which is a lot more, which still has people like that, but it's, there's a lot more diversity, and I think it's a, it's a lot. Therefore, there's a lot more tolerance, and there's a lot more just kind of there's a lot more calmness, or maybe it's just the, the students I've been teaching. But it'll come up in the context of like what we're reading. So, for instance, when we discuss the Odyssey, and we talk about the double standard that is how Odysseus really become basically um spends the better part of 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 his time at sea um betting Cersei and Calypso you know while Penelope's the faithful wife who's waiting at home and we're like the girls are like wait how does he get away with that and so we do have a discussion of like you know of of how like you have the male perspective in a lot of these things. And, and you, you know, I said, it was just like without stopping short of, of using the phrase, like, you know, the patriarchy, but it is very much like, uh, you know, I say, you know how I even point out and I, and I don't think it's a, I don't think it's me being subjective as a teacher or, or inserted my opinion, but I do point out is that the idea of this, you know, what you guys would consider like a sexist society where women can't work or uh, or are subservient or secondary or beneath the men in the household goes back in this case um, three four thousand years you know like thousands I mean I think the, the I think the story of the Trojan War is older than the Odyssey the Odyssey is what roughly like three three thousand thirty five hundred years old and there and so to them that's the actual revelation like wow like you know how far back does this go. Um, with my seniors, again, it depends. Like we'll talk about, I think it comes up a few times. We came up a few times last year. We talked about beloved, um, which we haven't done yet this year. We, we, you know, so if it, if it's within the context of literature and stuff, sometimes we talked about it when we talk about, um, poetry and things like that. And, you know, and, and, uh, how you can use male or female, you can use poetry to express your own voice because I do show them a lot of contemporary poets or spoken word poets and stuff. And they kind of see something where it's like, you know, somebody really bringing to light an issue or two. So it comes up. I do my best to, um, remain objective. At least, you know, my opinion is not objective. My opinion is what it is, but, and it's a combination of years and years of teaching the watch what you say. I will try to get you fired kid. Because I had a lot of those, so I was still a little gun shy with kind of injecting my own opinion on it in, in a in a group setting. And also, it's not really my job <laughs> to get on a soapbox in the middle of class, unless it's pop culture. Then I'm, uh-huh. then I'm yeah, sure. But yeah, so I try to I try to play moderator in those. But I have had one on ones with students about it, and we'll talk about stuff like that. So 
it, it's come up in my well, in one of my Latin classes, and it was the high school one, and it was interesting because the guys said that first of all, there's no such thing as toxic masculinity, and the second, so it's like a sort of a boogeyman, I suppose, and then secondly, that they just felt so villainized, you know, is that you know, it's it's that the Gillette commercial in particular was just so sweeping that it's every everyone, and I said, well, of course it's not everyone, and. One of the students was saying, we're, we're getting in trouble for being attracted to women. And I said, that's also not what they're saying. It's it's not. Wow. You can absolutely be attracted to a woman. It's how that attraction manifests itself. And how are you treating that, that woman and everything? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And yeah, like Lupin the Third, which we'll go into later. But the, uh, yeah, and, and I just told them, you know, if you don't like how this is presenting men then stand up and be that representative and change people's minds so really put a call out for them i personally like the gillette commercial i know some people have said that it's heavy-handed but i think when something makes you feel uncomfortable i think there's a reason why i I think that it was speaking truth and that made people feel uncomfortable and it was turning their attention to things that they saw but weren't seen if that makes sense and and turning a blind eye towards and so that's why i very much liked it and you know it's uncomfortable for unfortunately the white men that was another thing is that the guys there thought that it was very racist but you know it's uncomfortable for them because they're there you know sort of the apex of society and and you know we've had to go through all this crap that that they can't really i think understand necessarily or empathize with so i i hope i don't know i hope it changes there's that word empathize yeah, there it is again. I hope that it, it changes something. I, I think yeah. it's uh, with stuff that's been coming out recently, especially in our state. And I don't know if that's necessarily toxic masculinity with uh, the weird stuff that's been going on with our governor and mm-hmm. attorney general, right? But, you know, something I think we're starting to almost like light fires and, and get rid of the rats mm-hmm. or whatever it would be, yeah. you know, try to get rid of. So maybe we're starting to clean house. And and I think it's actually important now that people have virtues when they're leading in public office. And I think yeah. maybe people are starting to come to that realization. It's just going to take a little bit of time. But yeah. if you want to hear more of my thoughts, because I, I expouse way more than that, <laughs> I went on to Donovan and Harold, his real name is Harry, show uh-huh. questions we don't have answers when we talked about that particular Gillette ad. And he, they in interviewed, not really interview, but had a discussion with other people as well. So if you want to hear mm-hmm. more of that, I, I highly recommend that. But it, Is that out yet? I think it should be. They're pretty okay. quick on their turnaround, yeah. All right. Because I, I haven't – I apologize, Don. I, I don't listen to every episode. Like, you know, <gasps> I, I flit in and out, and I, I don't I'm – I'm a couple weeks behind. So if – I'll have to go back and look and see because um, it's in my – you know, it's on my feed. But Sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I will say that I, I understand the whole criticism about it being heavy-handed, but then again, I think it is a – it's a razor blade. Yeah. So the product is appealing. The product, it is not a, it is a Gillette razor blade. So it is a very popular mainstream brand that is appealing or targeting a very widespread male audience. And it has to spend, send its message in about what, 30 seconds. So it's going to be heavy handed to some degree. Like if you think of the, the, the voice audience purpose part of it, it's like, it, it's going to, it can't, there's not going to be a ton of subtlety in the in the message too right. yeah i think that's the by the way with regard to the um 
tire fire that is our state right now. Um, I think that toxic masculinity or toxic whiteness, whiteness, if that if that is a phrase, um, is in play here as well because it's 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 digging up things. And now, granted, I did not grow up in Virginia. I've only lived in the state for um, almost twenty years. It'll be twenty years in September. Um, prior to this, I lived on Long Island, New York, which has its own issues of racism and things that um, are of a different kind of <sighs> expressed in different ways. But uh, knowing knowing some history of the civil rights movement in the South and things like that, this is digging up and this is forcing people to um, face ish things that were very common among very elite groups of people, fraternities, which are a totally just uh, – <laughs> let's not even get into the toxic masculinity of the Greek system at a college – you know, so I think it's it's forcing them. It's because you know, notice that these are incidents that took place um, thirty, thirty-five, forty years ago. Right. So it's not like they did this yesterday. No. Our president does that for us. Oh dear. So well, it's just interesting. It's coming to light now. You know, people are. I think I think the Me Too has like really pushed things mm. out there into the light. I think it's also. <laughs> I don't want to get too too into the weeds on our governor, but prior to this revelation last week, there was a bill in the state, and I don't remember the exact nature of it, but it did deal with abortion, and there was a huge controversy over. Um, it was like it was like easing some restrictions and some of the um, regulation, not regulations, restrictions regarding um, mid to late term abortions, I believe. And there was a huge debate on it, and and I don't know much beyond that, but I know that the timing of this was that like it was somebody found this, dug this up, and sent it out because according to them they were upset over what was going on with that. So it was sort of, you know, I know like you know the 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 awareness that has come out of things like Me Too and, and other things definitely contribute to our reaction to it. But but it also has a lot to do with uh, the circumstances of what was going on in the in the legislative debate at the time. Mm. So, mm. but again, <laughs> this, this is somebody out there is debating this on a podcast. So could be, could be. <laughs> and I just and I just listened to season two of Slow Burn, which is uh, Slate's podcast. The first season was about Watergate, and season two was about the uh, Bill Clinton impeachment and Monica Lewinsky. And that is a talk about toxic masculinity. <laughs> so I recommend it, though. It's really, really good. OK. Yeah. Sounds good. OK. Well, I think enough about the, the heavy, serious stuff. But yeah. we could still talk about, you know, masculine men and womanly women in, mm -hmm. <laughs> in the JLA. But, you know, they use it well. So, yeah, let's do some JLA. The first one is going to be a nice little one shot, I would say. Yes. Okay, so yes, as Stella was saying, um, there is a kind of a one shot. I guess it might it might have been a fill in or or what? Um, because it is a it was written by uh, it is called the bigger they come. It was written by Mark Millar, who I don't know how much um, he had been. I don't know how early in this his career this is, but I know that later on he would go on to write um, the Ultimates, 
I think he wrote he had a run on the authority or, or I might sometimes I mistake him for Warren Ellis. And I know that he he's written a number of, of, of other superhero comics over the years, including Civil War. Did I get that right? Pretty sure he wrote Civil War. So um, Andy Leyland is like screaming into his Zunaphone right now. Anyway, right, Mark Millar is the writer. Mark Pierillo? Pierillo? Sorry. Is the pencil of the inkers are Walden Wong and Marlo Alquiza, um, or Alquiza. I, I teach so many students with Spanish last names, and I get those right all the time. Why can't I do this? Okay, <laughs> Ken Lopez is your letter. Pat, I killed the new Titans. That's the last time I'm going to make that joke. Wow. Gary, he is your colorist. Our cover date was February of 1999. Our pub date was January 27th, 1999. So it was just a little over 20 years ago, according to uh, if we're looking at the calendar, we're, cal- we're doing this on February 7th. So as the League is looking to expand even more, Green Lantern and Flash visit Ray Palmer, who we know as the Atom and who was once a leaguer to offer his membership. Ray, who was teaching at Ivy Town University and was most recently with the Teen Titans, and that was the Dan Jurgens uh, Teen Titans title that uh, ended right before Titans JLA. He turns them down. Meanwhile, in the Florida Everglades, Wonder Woman, Huntress, and Steel have, with the help of an imprisoned villain, T.O. Morrow, they have found an Amazon android. Morrow, who wants to foil the plans of his rival villain, Professor Ivo, has told the League that the android has the powers of the JLA, and it will go live in 60 minutes. Furthermore, the android cannot be moved from where it is in stasis because Ivo has planted a failsafe within it that will cause it to go nuclear if they even try. In Tokyo, Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent, and a woman named Nihon Kizai, who is really John Jones in uh, disguise, <laughs> meet in a restaurant to discuss League expansion. They debate how much influence and control the League should exert over the superhero community. Bruce makes a Superman 4 reference, and that's all interrupted by a telepathic communication from Oracle to John about the Amazo android, which she, which as she is talking to him goes live 30 minutes earlier than Morrow said it would mainly because Morrow's like a dude. I'm a villain. I wasn't going to completely cooperate. Our heroes in the Everglades are joined by GL and flash, but Amazo makes quick of work of them and reinforcements in the form of Aquaman, Zoriel and plastic man are no help either. More reinforcements are eventually called in, including the Ray, Mr. Miracle, Obsidian, Light Ray, Elongated Man, Bloodwind, Aztec, Captain Adam, Blue Beetle, Power Girl, Firestorm, Booster Gold, The Creeper, Black Lightning, Jade, and Fire. However, this all proves both to be fruitless and dangerous as it's discovered that Amazo can scan and copy the powers of the heroes incredibly quickly. Oracle, who is running the command center, begins getting frustrated and out from her telephone pops... The Atom, who has a solution. He eventually makes his way to Superman, who tells Amazo that he is officially disbanding the JLA. With that, Amazo shuts down, and we end with the Atom accepting a position as the JLA's science consultant. Woo! Yeah. And I would say that's probably the most important thing that happened in this issue, Mm -hmm. I'd say, is the fact that now Atom is somewhat on the team, or at least... Like on the bench, you know, like a pinch hitter sort of yeah. situation. So if they need him, they he will he'll get a call. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, a couple questions for this. Why do you think Bruce Clark and Jean meet in civvies to talk about league business in a restaurant rather than just meeting as them themselves <laughs> at the tower or wherever they might be? 
That's a good question. And I don't think the tower is in here at all, this issue, as I flip through it, uh, except for at the end. Um, you know what? I'm not I'm not exactly sure unless unless um, Millar wanted to just just have that scene because it was kind of funny in some regard. There's a couple of comedic beats like um, Clark and Bruce kind of having this little argument over uh, how much power to have and who's watching out for who and everything. And uh, they had sat down for just drinks. And then John turns to the waiter and says, waiter, I think we might take a look at the menu after all. In other words, we're going to be here a while. I, maybe I just, I just get this feeling that it's just supposed to be kind of like um, you set up for like a comedic beat or something. I mean, I, in this era, you, you rarely, you don't always get to see Bruce and Clark in their civvies, you know? Mm-hmm. So they have kind of a hot and cold relationship sometimes. I always find it fun to see them, especially because um, I just, I remember seeing Bruce Wayne less and less um, through the 90s in, in Batman books. And I know No Man's Land is like part of that. But at the same time, like, you know, it was, it's always it's always fun to see Bruce Wayne, either in the millionaire playboy guys, you know, the the klutzy sort of silly one or the, um, or the actual serious, you know, uh, it's, it actually, it's just Batman, like out of his costume type of Bruce Wayne. Um, you know, I, I always love when, when writers get to play with that part of the character. So, and the same thing with Clark. I mean, I've always liked, I've always loved the firm crisis to crisis era Clark, uh, because he is so much more of a, of a fully realized person than the, than the uh, kind of act that Superman puts on. So to see to see this and to see to see the two of them, and then kind of some of the gags with John in disguise. It's, I think it was I think it was just made for a more kind of a funny or interesting uh, interesting thing rather than them sitting around alone in the tower. <laughs> sure, yeah. It just it's an inter- it sets an interesting tone mm-hmm. because when you are yeah dressed as a civilian and you're in a restaurant, it doesn't seem like you're going to be talking about league business. So that's it, it threw me off a little bit, but I guess they did want to get out of there and it does allow some friendly banter and just being themselves to a certain extent, you know, Jean is of course as a woman at that point in yeah. time, but yeah, it's just it's pretty interesting to see that. Yeah. The Adam, I think he's pretty interesting. I some details that I caught, just the intro, of course, and Adam's micro lab. I thought was a lot of fun because Millar does not show his hand at all of where he is. It seems like it's just a normal lab, and then how fun that you zoom out and it's actually like microscopic. Yeah, <laughs> which of course makes sense for that particular character one thing was a little bit weird because he was talking about how he really enjoys his life when he's talking to the flash and green lantern and he mentions Mm -hmm. like apropos of nothing he mentions that there are four students with a crush on him did you take notice of this particular panel i did i did (laughs) do you have any thoughts i mean it's really it like no one's asking anything he's just like four crush and i think he says like three of them are girls or something like that yeah (laughs) just like I don't know. It was just it, it's an it's an odd line. Yeah. <laughs> There's a sort of um like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where he's got like all the girls kind of swooning at him oh, and everything. Sure. Yep. And that, that you know, one the, weird girl that has like something on her eyelids. Yeah, something. or something and it's yeah. like dude, you know, and you don't really you always forget that part. <laughs> but yeah, it's just again, I think it's I think Malar's just trying to be funny. Okay. Flash doesn't um, even respond to it though. He just is like, "No sweat, Ray. Just letting you know, yeah. there, you know, there's something to go on with that." Yeah. 
another thing that I noticed was with Oracle, our girl, and mm-hmm. let's see what page this is if I can find it. But she's very frustrated that nothing's working out. She's been trying, you know, she's trying to get these different leaguers and everything. And the image is of her. You can tell that she's crying almost. Where is this? Let's see. Is it? Um, oh, there it is. 18. Because Adam's there too. She says they can't beat him by themselves. Yeah. But authorizing any new leaguers only increases his powers etc and so i just wonder why she's beating herself up so much because it's not her responsibility to figure out what to do next and you know also why is she crying because she seems strong not to say that she's not allowed to but it does it seems like a very out of character moment and it's almost as if she's taking the weight of the team as if she were team leader did you at all think that this was a strange moment i I agree with you because she's. I mean, it's not like it's not like she doesn't get frustrated, and it's not like she wouldn't get like flustered in that situation. I don't understand why they have her crying. I I wonder if it's just one of these cases, and and I know Millar does this, is that he's writing the character to suit the needs of the plot, as opposed to writing the character in character. So I mean, maybe that's what's happening here, especially since like Ray comes in as the man. It's all like I've got this, like oh great, you know, or I've got this, honey, like you know. But because I think that she would be trying to come up with the thing and I, I understand her getting flustered like, you know, and, and this line, they can't be in by ourselves, but the but authorizing leaguers increases powers and like, you know, I, I, I'm, I like I'm at a loss to do what's next. The line itself is not not off the mark. I just think it's like the way this is set up and tonally, it's like it's just a little too forward, you know, so I agree with you. I don't know why she's crying. Not that Barbara can't cry, but right, you know, just yeah. it just it just it, it, she just is not the. This does not seem like that's her character, at least in a situation like this, because it's like you know, nobody's captured. It's just it's just a, a fight, and there have been like a million fights where they fought. You know, you'd think she'd be pulling case files about a Mazo or or something up. She'd have a little bit more to do than just kind of like running uh, running communications. So I think it's just – I think it, maybe it's just him writing her the way that he thought she'd be written. <laughs> I, she's very much someone who – you know, there's time for a lot of things, but crying's not one of them, you know, because that's yeah, it's not yeah. going to solve anything is I think yeah. would be her thing. Maybe afterwards she can vent her frustration some way, but I think in the moment this is not what she would do. She is – she strikes me as the type to be like really – even if she's flustered like when – uh, everything is done and she can log off. She just kind of, it, it comes in some way. And then maybe she has cried, but like, not that she's embarrassed to cry, but like, you know, after everything is done, it's like that rush that hits you after that, a lot of tension. And it's just like you cry or you puke or something. You know what I mean? Like right. yeah. that's Barbara in, in this era strikes me as that type of person. Like, yeah. you know, you can steal yourself as long, but then there's a point where you just had, where you let it go. And it's just like, you know, <laughs> I agree. I agree with you. Well, at the end, we see that Amazo is defeated. I would almost say anticlimactically, but all that has to happen are the two words, JLA disbanded. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this way of defeating Amazo? What was your reaction to it? If it's a one and and done story, they have to come up with some some sort of way to defeat him. Whether it's uh, some sort of strategic physical move or this, it's hard not to pull the old Deus Ace Machina with it. <laughs> yes, you know? Deus it's kind of what it is, right? You yeah. know, 
So uh, for the sake of trying to wrap the story up with because the story wraps up two pages later or three pages later, it works. I don't know. It's it's kind of like, all right. You know, I, I my favorite part of this issue is the fact that um, you got like a bunch of guest stars fighting this big robot. You know, like, I mean, that that's that was worth the price of admission. Anyway, you got to see people like, you know, old school leaguers and things like that. And. Um, and and some of the bwahaha characters and stuff. Even <laughs> if it was just the even if, I mean my my favorite panel of the entire of the entire issue, and, and my my graphic uh, my trade paperback does not have the original page numbers. So it is the uh, page where like three quarters of the page is the, the splash of all the heroes descending from the bug and beetles holding on to the thing and then he's coming like right at you he says that haven't you heard creep the jla just tripled in size and like you see all the heroes coming down and that's it's i that's my favorite panel of the entire issue because i'm like yeah you know and you get you granted they they get their butts handed to them but it's just it's just one of those great it's a great moment so that that was like guy is in the the black and blue that's in the top right of that panel because he's the only one i don't know that's uh all the way up in the that's obsidian Okay, thank you. He was um, originally in Infinity Incorporated. Okay. And he was in the JLA right before the Morrison run. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it was – oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for a knockdown drag-out fight, which we got to a certain extent. But then all of a sudden when Superman just says JLA expanded and it, it disbanded and it just <laughs> – Amazo's weekend. It's so weird. I thought this is. I mean, I guess it's super inventive because you don't expect it, but it also just seemed like very anticlimactic. And the -hmm. whole issue, I I think, because of its nature as a one shot, it doesn't seem like there's much on the line necessarily. So you're just like, you know, 22 pages. How invested am I going to get into this fight? Obviously, it's gonna it's gonna wrap up soon. So I guess it goes with that. But it was just it was super weird for me to have like that. How you defeated him? <laughs> yeah, it was almost like I was given the toy box, but I can't really do anything major, so I have to put the way the toys back the way I found them. Yeah, basically, yeah, that is basically pretty accurate. Yep. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else on this particular issue? No, I don't. It wasn't. It wasn't too bad. It was just like I said. It's a fun one and done. If it was because Morrison was late or Porter was late or something, and they needed somebody to fill in. It works. I did notice that Plastic Man hits on Power Girl at the very end. <laughs> yeah, I, she says like I don't know. Yeah, no, I what? don't know what why people call you eel. I so uh, let's not go into that. I, I don't even know what he means, but just of yeah, of course. And he's like actually his body is on the other side of the panel, mm-hmm. which is pretty funny. I, I do love it when artists get to have fun with um either the plastic man or elongated man characters in terms of putting them like every which way and where in the uh in the story yeah i mean he's our yeah our comedic edge so you kind of yeah have to. Yeah, yeah absolutely well what would you give this out of 10 amazos yeah probably about an eight I'm going to go a little bit low. Like I said, I wasn't very satisfied with it. I'm, I'm going to say a six. Ooh. All right. Yeah, a little bit low. Okay, so now on to our main event. Yes, this is JLA issues 28 through 31. Uh, I'm going to recap the entire storyline in one synopsis because it really just goes right into each other. I'll give you guys, I'll give everybody um, 
issue titles as we go. But the for the most part, the creative team is the same across five issues. The the storyline is called Crisis Times Five. The pen, the writer, of course, is Har- uh, Harold. The writer, of course, is Grant Morrison. The penciler is Howard Porter. The inks are by John Dell. Ken Lopez letters. Pat Garrahy colors again. Uh, this time we have color separation. Digital Chameleon did the color separation on issue twenty eight, and the Heroic Age. Uh, or Heroic Age, did 29, 30, and 31. Our associate editors, uh, who I forgot to mention last in the last recap, um, associate editor was Tony Bedard, and the editor was Dan Raspler. Our cover dates are April, June, July, and August of 1999, and our publication dates are February 24th, 1999, March 31st, 1999, April 28th, 99 and May 26th, 1999, which would have been 11 days after I graduated from Ooh. college, and three days after my wife did. So I was even um, or thereabouts. I know, I know it's, I, I believe it's like right after The Phantom Menace came out. Ooh. So, part one is called Crisis Time 5. We open on a prologue where the wise men of Bandizia are talking about the five receptacles containing five spirits, and that based on their interpretations of some old text, this means that the jinn, D-G-I-N-N, walk the earth again. They are visited by Captain Marvel, Shazam, who asks who brought them here and who makes a quip about someone being scared of a derby hat, which, by the way, I believe is supposed to represent Mr. Mixiplick. Mixie, mm-hmm. Mr. Mixie's Pitalik. Mr. Mixiplick was the way they talked about him on the Super Friends. Mixie's, Mixie's Pitalik, who's from the fifth dimension. We cut to Jay Garrick and Wally West, who are seeing uh, Keystone City warp before their eyes uh, over to the – and then to the JLA Watchtower where Oracle is briefing Superman and a number of other leaguers, including the Arrowman from the 1853rd century who we mentioned uh, appeared on the last page of issue 26. Superman mentions that Mixie isn't scheduled to make one of his 90-day appearances. He, he appears on Earth every 90 days. Um, he's not scheduled to make one of those appearances for another six weeks, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other Fifth Dimension imps running around. In Central City, JJ, who was – we also met at the end of issue 26 and who received Johnny Thunder's uh, lightning bolt, the genie, at the end of issue 26, is found hanging out in a bank vault and playing on his Game Boy. Wally brings Jay Garrick to the Watchtower on the moon and introduces him to the new Hour Man, who is the descendant of sorts of the original Hour Man, Rex TikTok Tyler. They get an update from Oracle on the pink lightning, which Jay recognizes right away, and he alerts the rest of the Justice Society of America. In Gotham City, Wildcat and Sentinel. Uh, this is Alan Scott, the original Green Lantern, the Golden Age Green Lantern. Discuss the circumstances, especially in light of Johnny Thunder having Alzheimer's and not being an active hero at the moment. In fact, I believe they say he's like in a home where he has home care or something like that. In The Shining City, which I believe is part of the DCU's heaven, Zoriel and another angel, Gorgonel. Look upon the specter who is imprisoned in what looks like a giant rock or asteroid or something. Zoriel accepts the mission to rescue him. In Chicago, a down-on-his-luck guy named Billy McIntyre tries to sell some sort of magic-looking pen in the black market, a pen that he had lifted from the Justice League's trophy room. The dealer ridicules him by pointing out that he was once a hero who was leading the Justice League, but then got kicked out when the current league came back. Unknown to this guy, the pen holds a spirit made of blue energy. 
and this is another genie and this genie keeps talking to Billy and then offers him a wish as genies tend to do ultimate power itty bitty living space (laughs) that spirit is from the fifth dimension and he is named Leeks LKZ Leeks what he does is he returns his super identity and Billy is now triumph to digress for a moment, anybody who does not know who Triumph is, because I don't believe this is an issue that you covered on this show. I don't think you would have. No, I did ask Shag, Shagalicious, but uh, since you know, you can say, but he did tell me. So thanks to Shagalicious for lending his, his expertise to me, at least. Did you ask or did he just offer? Oh, that's so rude. No, I said, Shag, do you, what sorts of things would you think listeners who don't read JLA would need to know about Triumph? All right. Well, <laughs> I will digress a moment and explain who it is. Triumph is a lost in time hero that appeared in the Zero Hour crossover issues that ran through all three of the Justice, then Justice League books in 1994. His appearance came about as one of those time anomalies where, according to him, he was the founder of the Justice League, but for some reason nobody remembers this. Triumph would later on have his own miniseries and then appear in several issues of Justice League Task Force. According to the Wikipedia page about him, he actually was not very well liked by fans, so Christopher Priest, who was writing him at the time, took that and kind of ran with him, making him kind of an arrogant character who ultimately had a lost soul. He eventually did get kicked out of the group, although it's important to note, especially for this story, that he became very close to both Gypsy and the Ray. After Triumph accepts Leek's, Leek's offer, we cut to the Rock of Eternity, where Captain Marvel visits with the wizard Shazam to get advice on how to handle all this. Shazam tells him that the war is bre- that war is brewing in the fifth dimension, and it is spreading to other parts of reality, and that there will be fighting on Earth as well as in heaven. On the moon, the JLA and the JSA prepare to team up, which longtime fans know is a long-standing tradition of the two groups that goes back to the original Justice League of America title from the 1960s. Zoriel explains that the Spectre's imprisonment is an issue because he is an important line of defense for our dimension against attacks from other dimensions. Our man tells the group that he can't exactly see who the villain is because there are time distortions surrounding him, and the groups then head out on their missions. A number of them go to Keystone where the bank comes alive and starts screaming that the world has a new master. And we head into part two, which is called The World Turned Upside Down, where our heroes are going to have to figure out what to do with this new threat. But first, we have an interlude with a group called The Quintessence. The group is a council of immortals who kind of keep watch over eternity and who were first introduced by Mark Wade in issue number three of Kingdom Come. They are the Wizard Shazam, the Phantom Stranger, the Guardian of the Universe who is named Ganthet, the Greek God Zeus, and the New God uh, from the light side of the New Gods known as High Father. At the beginning of part two, they just kind of stand around and watch from afar while providing a one-page summary of the previous issue. I guess that's helpful. Anyway, back in Keystone, things are going haywire, and the two teams do their best to fight whatever these things are. We see JJ running out of the bank, and Green Lantern appears to be zapped away. At the Watchtower, Captain Marvel arrives. In New York, Triumph has some drinks at a bar, and we see that he has found Gypsy and the Ray, and he is controlling them. 
On the astral plane, Zoriel and Sentinel arrive where the Spectre is being held and discover that he and the Rock are essentially now a world that's alive and full of life forms. They do not dare violate the Prime Directive. So they are kind of up against a rock in a hard place. Literally. Back in Central City, JJ thinks the Thunderbolt has something to do with this, but the Thunderbolt insists that he's one of the good guys. Meanwhile, Queen Hippolyta, the Golden Age Wonder Woman, joins the fight. Another quick digression here. Um, I do not know whether or not you have encountered this in your coverage of Batgirl uh, to Oracle, but during his run on Wonder Woman, John Byrne did a number of things. He did terrible things to Donna Troy, but... <laughs> One really good thing he did is that he established he did a he put a retcon in and he established that in the golden age Queen Hippolyta was Wonder Woman and she was a member of the JSA, and uh, this kind of was a fix for some of the odd continuity issues where they had to try to in, insert somebody in for the Wonder Woman role of the JSA because for the sake of George Perez there was neither a golden nor silver age Wonder Woman after Crisis. Diana at that point is like what it's at that point in the in the series I think she gets killed again like there are a couple of times throughout the post crisis Wonder Woman where like Diana ends up like going to hell or being turned back to stone or whatever you know um, as these things do so so uh, Hippolyta or as or as the JSA used to call her Polly uh, steps in and did they really point, call her Polly they used to call her Polly okay. yeah uh, which is, is such a like forties thing doesn't seem you know? like a Polly at all I have to yeah. Say. No, at one point, and I think that up until I think, and I think Hippolyta, spoiler alert, dies in the Our Worlds at War crossover. That was a Superman crossover later in uh, later in the nineties, early two thousands. But I think they both would wear the Wonder Woman costume for a while. So I don't know if she was showing up in the Wonder Woman book because I, I went to look at what was going on in Wonder Woman at this point and I couldn't figure it out. Uh, but I did get to stare at a number of Adam Hughes covers, so that's always good. This is where Shag is nodding, as if you know anything about Adam Hughes. Yes, yes. Yes. I've seen his art. Don't worry. He's a very nice man. I've met him. He signed an issue of New Titans for me with Starfire. I'm sure it was with Starfire. It it's issue number 93 of the new Titans and longtime new Titans fans know exactly what he signed. Um, so captain Marvel again, Shazam and not Brie Larson, uh, and Superman talk about what's going on. Superman says that they have to get, find a way to get to the fifth dimension and stop their attack before it really begins. Captain Marvel knows this. So he decks Superman. Why? Because the Big Red Cheese doesn't want the Man of Steel to sacrifice himself. He then heads over to the Rock of Eternity so he can go on his mission. And after he leaves, our man is attacked by Triumph. That is who the Time Anomaly was because he was kind of clouding up. Because of the fact that Triumph is all kind of out of time and all screwy, he was clouding up our man's ability to see the future and predict the future. Our man kind of has that Dr. Manhattan thing of like seven minutes from now we are going to be having a conversation going so Triumph then uh, takes a seat at the JLA's conference table, kind of like Guy Gardner used to do. Be all like, I'm in, I'm in command here. In Keystone Mayhem continues, and the Thunderbolt begs JJ to do something, and JJ lets him out, and Yiz, <laughs> YZ, takes on Leaks, LKZ, which may not be the best thing for Earth, because when you get huge, two huge Titan genies fighting, there is a lot of collateral damage. 
we move into part three, which is called Worlds Beyond. Steel, John Henry Irons, has transported to the Watchtower, and he begins to fight with Triumph, Ray, and Gypsy. He gets away, he sheds his armor, and John McClane's himself into the ductwork. Triumph decides to have a tantrum over the fact that the JLA has statues of themselves, which when you think of it, who does make statues of themselves in their own headquarters that nobody can visit? It's not like they always give tours or anything like that. You know, they're on the moon. I mean, of like living members. I mean, the Titans had statues of like, you know, the Titans had like dead members. Yeah, and the Legion had that too. But like, you know, why would Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman need statues of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman in the Watch? They're vain. They are vain. They probably just think the song is about them. Don't, don't you, don't uh. you. You walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. Your scarf it was apricot. You had So back in Keystone City, the fifth dimensional genies, they, they keep fighting. Um, on the world created by the Spectre, Zoriel and Sentinel contemplate how to free the Spectre. And when Sentinel realizes that time passes very quickly on this world, in other words, minutes to them are years to the, that world. This is an old science fiction short story chirp I've, I've read where like, you know, somebody like thinks they see like a, like kind of a little world and they become inadvertently become a God or something. Um, I, I've read stories. I think Philip K. Dick did a story of this. I think the Simpsons did something similar. Anyway, they figure out they might be able to do to free the specter and not violate the prime directive is uh, to just kind of watch the world run its course. Because like, if it's if thousands, I mean, like millennia go by in a matter of like an hour or so. So like by, you know, the world will eventually come to its inevitable end. The, their apocalypse will happen. And uh, once that's done, they can free him. So that's which in a weird way makes sense. Right. So um, this is exactly what they do. And in the course of although the course of the uh, millennia, Zoriel kind of becomes their god. Uh, the civilization does discover a way to harness the specter's power, and it does bring about its own end through basically like nuclear Armageddon or whatever. Fighting continues in Keystone while in Gotham, Batman speaks to Aquaman, who has dealt with the fifth dimensional being before an imp named Quisp. Quisp, by the way, is an impish character created in, a 19, in the 1960s by Kellogg's to advertise what was basically their version of Captain Crunch. Oh, my goodness. This is true. There was a cereal called Quisp. It had an alien, impy-looking character on the box, How and it was it very much way like, over to DC. I, I don't know. I, I Rob. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He was, Rob, oh, yeah. can you give us a history of Quisp and 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 what connection it? Ha- I'm sure Brian Cronin over at um, Comic Book Resources has done like a Comic Legends reveal or whether and which came first, the Kellogg's or the DC character. Oh my! Anyway. Quisp, 
is uh, he's in the fifth dimension. He's toying with Green Lantern. Captain Marvel arrives. He tries to help him. And we see that Quisp basically has the two of them on a piece of paper. So they're like two dimensional in the apartment. And we reveal that he is, uh, of course, he's the he's the big bad of this issue. He's behind everything. He caused the two lightning bolts to fight. He's making merry havoc in the third dimension, which is our dimension. And then on the satellite, our man appears in the duct work, and he tells Steel that his workshop is right below them. In Keystone, Wildcat, Huntress, Hippolyta, and JJ are confronted by Quisp, who basically says that in order to save the world, one of them has to die. And we see, courtesy of the Watchtower, that the news that the JLA has basically been defeated is coming out all over the globe. Triumph starts monologuing, as villains do, about how he's going to lead a new JLA to victory. And we pull back to see that waiting in the wings to confront him are Batman and Aquaman. Part four, which is the finale, is Gods and Monsters, which has, I think there was, that was used for the name of a Wonder Woman storyline as well. So Yeah, I, yeah I believe so. Yeah. Uh, we open with the Quintessence, catching us up to speed, and we... Then cut to Batman and Aquaman fighting Triumph, Ray, and Gypsy. Aquaman almost breaks Triumph's telepathic hold on Gypsy by reminding her of their time in the Detroit League, which I don't know if you really want to remember that. But it doesn't work, and Triumph appears to get the upper hand when Superman wakes up and comes right at them. In the fifth dimension, Captain Marvel and Green Lantern appeal to the citizens for help, and they deduce, not deduce, deduce, that the way to stop the blue and pink genies is to get them to combine and become a purple genie. Cap then says he has to get back to Earth and do some serious skywriting. In Keystone, Quisp appears to kill Wildcat, and above the Earth, where Lix appears to be ready to crush the planet, Yiz sees the phrase, T-Bolt will save world the world YLZ on the Earth, and then says, Yilzkiz. That's a, as good as I'm going to do with fifth, fifth dimensional speak. I'm not a ling, I'm not a very cunning linguist. Um, <laughs> JJ punches out Quisp. The fifth dimension police arrive and command Quisp to say his name backwards. Insert Destiny's Child joke here. Dark child, nah, nah. Say my name, say my name. No one is around you. Say, baby, I love you. You ain't running game. Say my name, say my name. You acting kind of shady. And take him home. On the watchtower, Superman fights Triumph and Steel, who has taken command of the entire building, talks to him and tells him that the game is over. Superman says the Triumph could have just asked to join the league if he wanted to so badly, and then he punches him. Triumph is defiant. He says that that leaves Steel no choice but to take him out. Triumph realizes that his genie is now gone because, you know, he's been transformed to the purple one. And then the specter shows up and turns him into ice. And the specter is about to smash him with a hammer. When Zoriel pleads for some sort of mercy, the specter's all okay, but the boss isn't going to be very happy with you and leaves in Keystone. Things return to normal. Wildcat is actually alive. After all, he has nine lives and JJ who now has a purple thunderbolt joins the justice society. We end with the quintessence watching plastic man and Zoriel talk about what happened because plastic man was taken out pretty early 
And the last page shows a trophy case with a frozen triumph and a plaque that reads founding member of the JLA and instructions to keep the temperature of the display case at 60 degrees below zero. So triumph will never be heard from again. No, it's just, there is no triumph of his will. <laughs> Why well, Facebook message Rob. So maybe we'll hear something by the end, but who knows? <laughs> well, to start right off, do you mm-hmm. prefer JLA or JSA? Well, I'm a Titans fan, so there's that. I don't know. You know, it, it depends on – I really like the JSA. I guess it would depend on the era because I do enjoy like the JSA, like the All-Star Squadron JSA. I haven't read a lot of this, like the Jeff John. This this leads um, – I don't know if it comes out directly after this or not, but pretty soon after this uh, storyline – the Jeff Johns written JSA title starts, which is the one that ran all the way to, uh, like to infinite crisis. Oh, okay. Or so thereabouts. Yeah. So, um, in, yeah, in fact is, I think, I think it starts very close to, to the end of this. It's right around this time. I've never actually read, I've read maybe a couple of issues of that, but I've never actually read it. It's a big blind spot. I might, yeah. JSA number one, comes out the same month as JLA number 32. So this leads right into the Justice Society okay. being reformed. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the JSA, but I've always been like, if, if I guess if I had to choose because of the fact that I've been a fan of these core seven characters of the JLA since I was a little kid and watched the Super Friends, um, I would have to go with the JLA. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, I... I guess kind of grew up on Justice League and and that animated series, but there are certain members of the JSA that I really find intriguing, and and Wildcat is is probably one of my favorites. I, I was very happy to see him in this in this particular story. So JSA is, I think JLA is so prolific, almost like people generally know about them, but JSA, I think they're like classics and. Mm-hmm. I like when they appear. I like when they appear. But yeah, do you feel like this story is really and perhaps just a part of it is really about trying to get respect and a place at the JLA table? I think on some way it is. It is definitely a recurring theme among a few characters that kind of come in and out of the JLA throughout this run, like the Huntress, for instance, um, who always seems to be intermittently not really caring whether or not Batman likes her, but then also seems to be like, you know, annoyed when he doesn't (laughs) like, but I think on some level or it's that sort of that, that odd jealousy that, that triumph has like, you know, why am I not good enough? That sort of thing. Like the sort of down on his, like he's, it's almost like he's a washed up old football player Mm. or something. Like he's a washed up athlete who, who can't get over the fact that he never made it bigger. He never like, he never was as great. And he just sits there and like how much better he is than all these, you know, these jerks making millions of dollars. And you're just kind of like, well, what happened to you? You know, I mean that there's, I get that feeling of it, especially through triumph and stuff. Could you get behind him at all? Um, empathy for him? A little bit in the scene where he's dealing with, the black market guy where he's trying to get money. Like he's so down in his luck and he's so just destitute and desperate that he's, 
he's sneaking into where he can and swiping, um, you know, swiping uh, weapons and things like that because he he's literally trying to pay his rent. Yeah. So I could kind of feel for him there. As the story went on, it was like, you know, I don't know if this is if if he really had this ambition, this this arrogance the whole time. If it was this was the side effect of what was essentially a Faustian bargain or what. But he he became more and more of a villain. So when he died, the fact that they put him on display was almost comical to me. You know, I didn't really feel anything for him then. Yeah. Yeah, that was. I mean, I guess he gets what he wanted potentially because yeah, in an ironic sort of way. Yeah, yeah. I, I think at the beginning is is the only time that he's really written to be somewhat sympathetic because after that, I just thought, gosh, get rid of this guy, and then yeah. he beats up poor Steel, and then I was just waiting for Steel to to give him his comeuppance, which happened. So I was I was happy that in the end, Triumph was taken down. Yeah, Especially because too. he was mind wiped, like he was doing pretty unethical things to his former teammates, which that was also mm-hmm. like a point of no return for liking that character when he was basically forcing Gypsy and who else was with him? The Ray. Yeah. To help him out. I thought, oh, yikes. You know, yeah. we all know what happens when people are mind wiped. Bad things. So, I, yeah, that was terrible. Well, and it's not like he's go- he's going up against somebody who is uh, – it's not like his opposition is a bunch of like really flawed, complex people who are just as bad or something. It's the Justice League, you know, noble, do-gooding superheroes who are literally heroes. So it, it, they're, they, you know, Superman – not that Superman and Batman and all of them aren't complex characters when they need to be. But for the purposes of this story, they're the good guys. So, yeah, so you can't feel – Empathy tore him, or he's a villain, so he kind of loses anything you have because of the fact that he he is he's diametrically diametric is that the word opposed to um, to these people. Right. Another weird thing that happened was, of course, with the Spectre because Zoriel and Alan Grant are off on their own for. Basically three of the four parts, I would say. And so they're going back and forth on what to do because there are these primitive creatures there. And they make a decision to Mm -hmm. speed up time in order to release Spectre. And it would doom a civilization. They're thinking that it'll just like the civilization will peter out and then – but basically – The civilization just essentially runs its course. Yeah. But what was the point of this particular storyline in the end? Because he doesn't even do anything afterwards. Yeah, except for coming into um, her triumph. And even that, this is where it was like, I was kind of like a little lost. Like, I don't know what the purpose of triumph was, you know, aside from being. He's the one in, who released the genie, I suppose. Yeah, he released the yeah. genie. I guess that's the that's the one thing. But, like, according to the discussion that they have, the Spectre kind of stands as a barrier between uh, to protect our dimension from the other dimensions, which I'm not up on my Spectre. I know he's essentially the personification of the wrath of God, you know, and therefore he comes down to judge. But I guess that somehow also helps him become a barrier to attacks from other dimensions or something. So I guess the conceit is that by shackling him, what Quisp has done is he has put in place. Like he's taken out one piece 
uh, move one piece off the board that would get in his way for an actual full invasion sure. from the fifth dimension. And but the JLA stops it before he could even get that far, which logically makes sense. Graham Morrison loves his like weird stuff, his limbo things, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, like, I don't know if you've read Final Crisis or not, but there's oh, this whole part <laughs> that takes place in limbo. Remember, mm. like he, he loves that sort of stuff. And I know this is like, I've read, I've read a number of his books by now. And I know this is one of the, one of the ones that is one of the more straightforward superhero books that he's done. So it doesn't get as weird as, like his Doom Patrol or Animal Man or, or even Final Crisis and and Multiversity and like some of the other stuff that I've read, but at the same time I think it's just in my mind I'm like maybe this is just his chance to be his his weird self, yeah, and and play science fiction and stuff. Um, it's a clever trick. It just I don't know how much it works because I kept trying to figure out like what are these two doing here, you know? Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, I I don't know. I just felt like <laughs> after all that time spent on the page, he really didn't do anything and he was told to go off because they basically solved the issue. But you're right about he was basically – that was the specter I was just talking about. But yeah, yeah. Triumph is also just almost like a, a plot device. He's used for some other – situation yeah. you know releasing the genie yeah. regarding those genies i do find it amazing or funny that they have to create the purple because at school we say no purpling which means you know no romantic and you know things <laughs> on field trips and things we say no no purpling and then our overnight retreat because the the boys are blue and the girls are pink so mm. that, i thought that was very interesting speaking of the the weirdness though you bring that up there was there was a bit of weirdness during the traveling to the fifth dimension yeah it was uh kyle and captain marvel correct yes and i do have to say that it was probably my favorite scene because of how weird it was or mm -hmm. scenes i should say and it was my favorite art because of how i mean it was like destroying the panels it was really yeah. pulling the reader into the fifth dimension i thought that was really wonderfully done by the artist and then the courtroom scene i just felt like yeah this is absolutely some wacky thing that i have seen on a cartoon because i think at one point superman goes and visits the fifth dimension if i'm not mistaken mm -hmm. so I, I i would say that was probably my favorite part yeah, I agree with you. It is very just uh, – it, it's very much an artist having fun and really just kind of being goofy. And, and, and you're right. It just – it's it, it plays with it but without – being weird but weird a weird that you expect it to be because you're in – you know, you're in Mixie Pitlick's yeah. land. Yeah. So that's one of the uh, – that's one of the really, really cool things. And like the Fifth Dimension is all sorts of like weird settings and everything like that. And, so, yeah, I thought that worked really, really well. What do you think about – I call him the cursing kid, J.J. Thunder, because about every third word are a bunch of symbols. What do you think about this particular character? He he reminds me like he would have fit in with a good crossover with like Static. Ah, oh, okay. And and some of the Milestone characters and stuff like that. Like, you know, from the ones that I've read, like it's just – it it – it's in some cases I like the fact that they gave the Thunderbolt to like a totally different type of character, like this kid. Some of the dialogue is very like Grant Morrison trying to write teenagers as well as Bob Haney used to write teenagers, so it's like a little cringeworthy. 
Porter at least draws him to look like a teenager. He he looks like he could be a teenager. There are a couple of panels where he looks like he's probably in his twenties, like you know he's a little too old. Right. But but at least he looks like a kid most of the time. I think he works. Um, it definitely gives the, the one of the things I know that JSA and then the later Justice Society book would be would be about like you know not only being the old guard and the classic superheroes those you know um, or the the first superheroes, but like since they were all old men and women by that point, training the next generation, you know, you'd have like another wildcat and you'd have another, you know, you'd have um, Jesse quick would eventually take on the, the mantle of Liberty bell. And mm-hmm. so the idea that like this, the, that idea of that legacy continuing um, from, from the, the bits and pieces that I've read. So um, him being kind of the part of that legacy and stuff continuing from something like infinity incorporated, I think it works. It's, you know, it's not bad. The, the foul language is, I think it's just Morrison trying to write a teenager. And, and sure. in some cases it works in some cases it doesn't. The Justice League, the leaguers have more, well, I should say the leaguers and the societers have mm-hmm. more patience for the kid than I do. I thought that he was pretty obnoxious. But finally at the end, then I was super upset because Ted got killed because of him basically. But mm-hmm. then in the end, he ends up you know, coming back and, and doing the right thing. So at that moment, my heart turned a little bit towards him. So he was mm-hmm. able to learn from it. But Queen Apollo, she's got way more patience than I would expect <laughs> from her because if, if Diana were doing something like this she would smack her down (laughs) oh man oh well oracle of course i think i'll I'll jump to her so she's actually visually on the roll call because there's always a roll call at the the first page or so she's actually only on the final roll call her head Mm -hmm. and i just thought that was interesting because i don't think she's even in that issue at all but how much of a role do you feel like she actually plays in this particular story since this is you know the Barbara Gordon podcast. <laughs> I'm flipping through. I see her at the very beginning, kind of just giving us the expositional news network, copyright Michael Bailey type of thing. Um, you know, I'll keep an eye out for you. She kind of gives the update thing. Is that really all? I know she has a part in the next big storyline because there is a particular panel or page that I vividly remember from the World War Three storyline. So Graham Morrison is, quote, keeping her around, you know, for reasons. Okay. But I'm looking and I'm flipping through and I'm and maybe I'm missing a page here or there, but I'm really not seeing her very much. I see her in that first part. I am hearing that the end of the third part, she, you, there's all these different – right before Triumph starts to walk out with Ray and Gypsy out of the uh, conference room, you – see two word balloons where it's like, you know, this is Oracle. Why? Both flashes are, you know, so among all the jumbled news reports and things, yeah, she really has very little to do. Yeah. I'm flipping through the last issue right now and I'm seeing, I'm not really seeing anything here either. So they really, he really doesn't give her much to do aside from provide a little bit of exposition or kind of, you know, tell us the audience by by virtue of the fact that she's telling the JLA where to go she's telling us the audience where the setting is going to jump to in the next in the next portion so yeah it's just woefully underused there could have been something really interesting with her going on here um, yeah 
And I'm trying to, I mean, she was, she basically could have been coordinating two different teams. And I don't know if it was just too hard because probably her communications wouldn't have gone to the fifth dimension. And then, of course, wherever the specter is, like maybe just communication, it didn't make sense. But Mm -hmm. yeah, her absence, (laughs) I noticed it anyways. And yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how, how she could have been implemented better. Well, this is something that I, when I was reading it, and I, and I read through this twice. I've read this before, and then I read through it just for for reference's sake. I am reading this out of the Justice for All trade, which is what I got what I used for the previous storyline, and the copyright on this is nineteen ninety nine. So this is one of the first. This is the first time they collected these issues back in the late nineties, early two thousands, when they were collecting all of Grant Morrison's stuff as it came out. One of the things that I noticed is I read it years ago, obviously when I first bought it, and then when I wrote it. I read it twice for this, the first time just reading it through and then um, kind of reread it as I was writing the recap, you know, as you do. It jumps from scene to scene to scene so much. Like the it's it's almost like a if it's a TV show, it's a lot of quick edits. Right. There's a couple of times where it stays on a scene for a little while, but not very long. It's very, very quick. It's I, I think he wants it to be quick paced, but it feels like it rushes by and you don't really have a lot of things marinating in a, in a way like, you know, maybe it's just because he shoved so much into four issues. And if he had six, if he had this over six, it might have just slowed down a little bit. But like it's it's this kind of rush through like four issues of, of all these things happening. And it's um I think that works in some places, but it also um like in that he doesn't in that the pacing doesn't drag where like he has to fill pages because he only has like one thing going on. Like with three things going on, he can go from place to place and and you know, not get bogged down in anything boring. But at the same time, there are points where I'm like, whoa, whoa, slow down, like because I don't know what the heck's happening. And there were places where I had to go back and like, wait a second, with this whole Spectre thing, I'm like, wait, why were they there again? Because it was just like it kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going. So you didn't know which was the most important part and which wasn't what you know. So yeah, it it made it hard to follow in places, which is odd because it's a very easy book to follow usually. Do you think that's why Our Man does this? thing a couple times where he basically says we had this conversation and it skips like these unnecessary scenes yeah he just like answers questions and he's like we were about to have a six minute conversation but here's the answer do you think that's why grant morrison does that it's like a cheeky way to speed through and not have any long conversations or long scenes if this were if this were about uh maybe written about maybe five to ten years later, he'd be totally throwing shade at Brian Michael Bendis, but Bendis wasn't writing for DC or Marvel at this point. So sure. okay. But yeah, it's but you know what the thing is is like we could have used a scene or two like that. You know, we're not, I'm not talking an entire issue where everybody just stands around and talks, but Whereas Millar in the previous issue, as uncharacteristic as a few of the moments were, he gave us some character moments, even like GL and Flash and everything. Like he gave us those character beats. Morrison should have taken it just a couple, especially with the JSA characters in this issue, a little more than he did. He gave us a couple of them. There was some back and forth between Ted and and Alan Scott, and then there was a little bit of – when they first meet up Jay Garrick and in that scene before and after that scene between Jay and Araman and all that. But I don't know. It, it could have just used a little bit more, you know? Yeah. 
I agree. And and to be honest, I was getting a little sick of it because it didn't mm-hmm. happen once or twice. Like you can laugh at it a couple of times, but he was repeatedly skipping through things. And I can understand if there's a dire situation because I think he does it with steel at one point and says, you know, we just need to skip to this. This is what's going to happen and goes through that. But it also makes me question if our man is even present, why could he not have done anything like to prevent anything? And I guess – Maybe Morrison gets to this because I think our man is a bit powerless when he gets to triumph. He can't really do anything mm-hmm. against him. But I just feel like w- when you've got a time master, I'll call him, on your side, it seems like a lot of things shouldn't happen. Yeah, I, I got the feeling that what was happening was um, t- uh, triumph and in some on some level the fifth dimension figures were kind of throwing him off. Okay. They were kind of like messing, like everything was cloudy. They were kind of, he was on the fritz a little bit because of it. There was like, it was, um, he's a robot. So it was essentially like creating like static in him. So he couldn't see things clearly and he couldn't plan it out. And what's, and you know, and perhaps that's something that, um, that the fifth dimension genies accounted for. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, that's my no prize of it. It, That might not be the case, but it makes sense though. So we were told near the beginning, it might have been part two because I think it ended on a cliffhanger hour, man, I believe told Superman that someone was going to die and it happened to be Ted. But was it a bit of a cheat that he actually just loses one of his lives? And I did ask Shagalicious about this because I thought, I I don't think Ted was ever a metahuman, is he all of a sudden? And he mm-hmm. mentioned that like it ha- it popped up out of nowhere as as if it were this idea that he had nine lives, it popped out of nowhere that as and made to seem as if there were a history behind it. But this is the first indication that he has this just for, for information's sake. But do you think it's a cheat that that's, we killed off Ted. And for me, that was actually pretty emotional there. Cause I thought, Oh, he was trying to do the right thing and mentor yeah. this kid and what could happen. But wait, he's okay. I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> clever, you know, did he mean to kill him and it wasn't? Is it, you know, uh, this isn't the first time that Ted Cord's done, gone down in battle and then had somebody kind of take Cord? over. Not Ted Cord, Ted Grant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the first time this has happened. Remember, he got hurt in Crisis and in Infinite Earths. And Yolanda, Monte- Yolanda Montoya or Montez uh, was Sounds the like second the Wildcat. Yeah, and you go, you killed my father, prepared to die. <laughs> Stop saying that. Uh, he he got his legs crushed or something in, in okay. one of the anti-monitors attacks or something. I don't know. It's all right. It's it's you know it's it's kind of like when it's kind of like when Nightwing only gets killed at the end of Infinite Crisis. Like if Dan DiDio had his way, he oh, would have that would have happened. Nice. But you know, yeah. but he he's like in critical condition at the end, but then he appears and he's okay. The I have nine lives thing. I. Don't know if that's a power or if it was just a joke. Okay. And he actually just survived. Okay. You know, he's t- I'm tougher than I'm tougher than I that I look. You know, where to bulletproof vest? You know, like that sort of thing. Where it's like you know he appears to die and he doesn't. And for for all for all I know, when all the fifth dimension stuff was undone, that was eased or something a little bit. So I don't know. Let's just say he was really, really badly injured. It looked like he was dead, but he's not. And the nine lives thing was a crack. Okay. Well, it seems like, I mean, the way Shagalicious 
presented it's almost as if he has a power. It's very possible. He, he calls know. it a power. And I guess Shag says that it's stuck and subsequent writers use the idea. So I wonder okay. if we'll see it again. But. I'll go with that. I mean, like I said, I'm not – I know the character, but I know him through interactions with like uh, members of the Bat family. Okay. Rob Kelly got back to me, and he said that it was the other way around. So Quisp was actually actually in comics and then serial. Oh, okay. So he debuted in Aquaman number one in 1962, but the serial came out in 65. Oh, uh, okay. All so right. So thanks for that, Rob, for being Facebook Messenger is sometimes helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. Well, what did you overall think about this particular adventure? Another crisis, though I don't know if we can consider it, yeah. you know, in the big crisis. Oh, it's not. Yeah, no. no. It's fun. <laughs> you know, it's it's a fun big fight. There's a lot of wacky art and stuff. Um, I think it's uneven. I think Morrison <laughs> kind of gets, like, tries to cram too much into just four issues. If this had been six, it probably would have been really great. Um, but it's not. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed the uh, the, the issue that came before it. The so, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a good piece of it, – it is a good piece of popcorn. It's, you know – <laughs> In that way, you know, it's just, it's really, it was really entertaining. It's, it wasn't a waste of my time. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I, I think I would rate it with the other one, but, you know, I didn't <laughs> enjoy the other one as much. It wasn't like the best story that I read. I somewhat agree with what Plastic Man says at the end that it was a pointless one. He says it was like a pointless adventure. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, that might be true. I didn't get to see my girl Babs very much, but I did get to see some characters yeah. that I enjoy working together so you know there are some positives and of course like i said the fifth dimension scenes i think were my favorites Mm -hmm. well did you have anything else and if not what grade would you give this i don't try to think if there's any anything else in here um i would give it probably the same grade i gave the last one about an eight out of ten and i'm probably being generous i grade too easy (laughs) i'm going to give it a seven out of ten uh purple genies okay (laughs) Well, I do have some listener feedback. Mail time. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. And it's actually just one. It's from Ian Prime based off of episode 168. I don't know if you've read, Tom, Heroes in Crisis or if you're reading that. I am not. Okay. So in Heroes in Crisis number four, there was a scene with Barbara and she's in front of the camera and she – a video camera giving a testimony and it's – wordless for the most part and she lifts up her shirt to show the entry and exit wound and basically just says here and here and so there was a topic of debate of you know was this too sexualized you know what was the point of all this and then this interaction between her and harley almost making babs out to be uh well of course babs and harley both out to be victims of their male counterparts and also casting more of an antagonistic relationship maybe antagonistic is not the best word but an unfriendly or colder relationship between batman and barbara than i've seen in this current continuity so Uh I think I remember you talking about yeah, this. Yeah, so Ian Ian ended up writing a really great article that's on the Batman universe that looks at the relationship between Batman and Barbara. I should just say Bruce and Barbara, but it really is Batman and Barbara 
post-Killing Joke, like right after, and he goes through like Batman Chronicles number five and, you know, some scenes uh, dotted throughout. So he goes through that. So I do recommend reading that. So anyways, on from episode uh, 168, wow. He says, regarding Heroes in Crisis, I think the art was very sexy, though I think the body language was well done in the interview scene. There's an earlier scene with Lois and Superman having an intimate conversation in their bedroom that I think was much more jarring and distracting in the way it depicted both Lois and Superman's bodies as sexual objects in a story about extreme emotional trauma. So the Batgirl stuff didn't strike me as much, but I think it's definitely there. One theory I've been thinking about while trying to parse what Batgirl says to Harley is that while Batgirl definitely has some justified resentment towards Batman for his actions and attitude during The Killing Joke, as you discussed with the legendary John Ostrander about his Kim Yale and Brian Stelfreeze's masterful Oracle Year One story, I don't think that's really the relationship between Bruce and Barbara historically. Instead, I think there might be a chance that Barbara, being a brilliant and empathetic person, understands how to connect with Harley to stop her dangerous rampage. It's not completely satisfying as an interpretation, but I think there's a chance that is what Tom King intended. As for the age of Babs and Harley, I think that DC won't let Babs age past 21 at this point in continuity. I feel like she's 25 right now, but I don't know. Unfortunately, and Harley is generally written with probably at least late 20s level experience, I think, so I agree that writing them as contemporaries doesn't quite fit. Birds of Prey, Godwin's Law, people who bring up Hitler in an argument are resorting to lazy reasoning. Yes. Well, isn't that the the other part of it is that like inevitably – a argument on the internet will eventually reach Hitler. <laughs> I guess. I don't yeah. yeah. And then what can you do? You can't really like you can't combat against that really. Once you drop Hitler, you're like, well, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's at an end. You've just basically ended the argument. You're, you're dealing with that per you know, and you know the type of person I'm talking about who like who thinks they win the argument if they have the last word. So like, and trolls are really good at that. They always have a comeback. They always keep talking, even though you're like, I'm done here. But they get that last word, and they're like, "See, I won," because for some reason they just had some. They'll they'll always keep saying something over and over, and you're just kind of like, "All right." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Batgirl comment he has I'm a huge Batman Eternal fan so I like seeing this follow up though I share your sadness that Jason Bard isn't a good guy in this continuity and we're Tom and I will get to that soon Archie meets Batman 66 interesting that Chris enjoyed the art for this issue as much after the richness of Rich Burchett the Archie meets Batman art seems very good at staying on model but doesn't really get the kinds of expressions that I think could have deepened the emotional response to the plight of the story I also thought the last three issues probably should have been compressed into at most two, if not just one issue, as there didn't really seem to be any major cool moments that justified three full issues of wrap-up after the much more clever setup in the first three issues. I had the same problem after reading manga and going back to American comics reading the wrong way, and he gives me a little smiley-faced emoticon. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was my issue. I told you about that too, Tom. That was, yeah. I read like three... Which was really six because there were there were two volumes in one, and then I started reading Rust, and I started reading on the wrong side. It was terrible. So, whew. Anyways, okay. Any comments on any of that? Uh, you know how I solved that issue with manga? Not read it. Yeah, I don't. Read manga. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's. I'll kind of take your word for it because I have to tell you that. Do you know how many DC books I have on my pull list at the moment? One. Yeah. Do you know which one it is? Well, you told me you were going to drop Wonder Woman. 
I dropped Wonder Woman a while ago. Is it Teen Titans? Young Justice? No. no. Well, okay, no, too, because Brett, Brett's getting Young Justice. Oh, okay. Um, he, he want, I, I, I saw it on the stand. I'm like, he might like this. He's getting it. It's Scooby-Doo Team-Up. Ah. Oh, <laughs> it's it's okay. his. He's been buying it since we first got it. So it's Young Justice and Scooby-Doo Team-Up are the only two DC books I'm buying. My personal pull list is all indie at the moment. And okay. I'm not saying that to be pretentious. I just oh, – no. I didn't – mind bendis as superman i was just i don't know i, I was just like you know what i, I don't think it, it, it had piled up i was like oh this is all right but i was like you know what i it i don't really you know i think i'm gonna take a break from that and uh i i, I dropped uh, wonder woman i stopped with issue 50 yeah so i'm but still I, you know, I going with else. wonder woman mm-hmm. and it's written now by g willow wilson yeah, it looked intriguing, but I was like, mm, maybe I'll <laughs> – if I come across a trade or a yeah. sale or something, I might, That's, I might check yeah. it out. Yeah, Wonder Woman and Batgirl are basically the only the only DC books that I'm I'm reading. I'm reading yeah. – for Marvel, I get sort of the female the female titles almost, mm-hmm. uh, X-23 because I, I really like that and mm-hmm. uh, Ghost Spider and mm-hmm. trying to think. I actually really like Dr. Afra, which I get. That's like my one Star Wars book. I had been reading the Darth Vader. Yes, I, read I the, was too, I read the, yeah. Yeah, I got to read the Charles Sewell Darth Vader book. Yeah. I haven't read that yet. I heard it was really good too because I read the yeah. Kieran Gillen one. And now it's come to an end, so you can you can yeah maybe it, I'll perhaps. maybe if Amazon or Comixology has one of those sales next year, I'll be like you know because that's how I got the or I got the um, I would get the digital Darth Vader trades because every once in a while Amazon sent me right. like a free trade. Yep. So I was like, I got like three of them for free. So yeah. You know, and then like you, I'm I'm getting you know more of the you know the image comics. So mm-hmm. we're both reading Paper Girls. Yep. And, Which apparently yeah. is going to be coming to an end <gasps> because I read previews. Okay. So this is we're, – we're, we're, we're recording this in early February. So we read the previews that came out at the end of January and um, issue 26 or 27 was solicited. It says it's the final arc. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Um, but I mean – and that's no – I don't think that's image canceling the book or anything. It's, you know – because that book is selling like, you know, it's a really popular book. I would think that's a random, where are we, 25? What's he going to end on, 30? Yeah, I, I don't know what he, where he think he, he would it, end on like 50 or something. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. It just, it said final arc. It didn't say how long the final arc was going to okay. be. So, oh. but yeah, so, um, but I'm getting what, the new Kieran Gillen book, Die. Okay. The premise is basically all these people are basically trapped in their Dungeons and Dragons game. <laughs> I mean, there's only like two issues out right now. I got um, – I haven't been this week, but I, I, I did get Archie 1941, Ooh. which was pretty cool. And then I'm getting uh, some James Bond book and Robotech, Strangers in Paradise. Robotech. And see, Don doesn't like the new Robotech. Oh, interesting. I don't think – I think the reason Don doesn't like – Don's going to be like – Don's going to come at me. Don doesn't like what they did to Min May. Oh, boy. He doesn't like how they characterized her. But the thing is, and, and Ange, Ange and I do not dis- do not agree with all things Robotech because Ange is the one who, like, throws Dana Sterling at us all the yeah, time. Yeah. But Ange keeps posting panels of Lisa Hayes in it. 
and his catch is like, this is not your father's Lisa Hayes. I love the Lisa Hayes in this new Robotech series. It's she's so great. And I always loved Lisa Hayes, but I was like, <laughs> yes, she's just she's such a badass. I'm like, yeah. So so I enjoyed that. I'm trying to think of what else I get. So like I, I get a lot of one offs and things like that. So Okay. Yeah. Lumberjanes, I get that. Middle West, I just started mm-hmm. uh over at Image, which is a fun little fantasy. Nancy Drew, I've not had a couple issues. I it might be in mm-hmm. a little pause or hiatus, but that was a lot of yeah. fun as well. And yeah, so they're just sometimes I just take a little I take a shot at, at something yeah. at, at Image and, and I like it. So Brett, Brett has read and I may read it because he keeps saying I should read it. He and, and it's by a former backer writer. Uh Hope Larson. Oh yeah, uh, Goldie Vance. That's right. Yeah, he has. Um, he bought the first trade paperback when we met her at Baltimore Comic Con a couple of years ago, because she was next to Joe Staten, and he was looking at that trade paperback. He's like, "Can I buy, buy this?" And she signed it. And she was very, very nice to him. She was very nice to me. I bought him two, three, and four. Um, so he has the four trade paperbacks, and he says it's really good. So I might, I might check it out. So I'm trying to think of what else I get off the top of my head, but I'm not going to go and look at my pull list right now. So, Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay, well, Tom and I are going to take a break. And I will say that if you've been following the social medias, Facebook or Twitter, I let people know that I was in my workplace, which is a school, Taojo. <laughs> Which, because it was a house where we have houses kind of like Harry Potter, but not exactly. And they wanted to go up against, the kids wanted to go up against a teacher act. And my name was dropped in an email that, you know, it said, you could sing or dance or, you know, stand up. And it had my name, Stella. And I thought, I emailed back and I said, you realize if I did stand up, I would basically make fun of everybody and then put in parentheses Leslie which is the the boss the boss Mm -hmm. boss and then she wrote back basically dropping down the gauntlets of you know let's see what you got and then it I I had you know some ideas I thought is this really going to happen I got a check of like yeah that's okay it's not inappropriate and so I decided to go I didn't know I was going to be the only faculty representation but I did I had (laughs) I had (laughs) which was it was nerve I was really really racked with nerves the wednesday before i ran through it it was five and a half minutes i was told i only have like three ish three and a half four Mm -hmm. and i just felt when i was laying it out there i just thought this is this is not gonna go well it's just not good (laughs) thursday i got it down to four and did it twice and before going to bed i came up with this like good zinger at the beginning that i thought if this lands then i think i'll have some good momentum and then mm-hmm. Friday morning, I was just racked with nerves and then finally went up there. And that zinger did, in fact, land. And <laughs> I had three parts, sort of three stories, and the last one tied into the beginning. So it all worked out really well. And I ended up getting People's Choice for the for the uh, co-house act. So there weren't, yeah. So, But it's opened up this weird floodgate because that night, Friday night, I couldn't sleep because I was coming up with like other jokes I could use. It's, mm-hmm. It was a terrible 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 thing but anyways all that to say that if you're interested i'm going to post it at the end of this episode it's about i think it turns out to be five and a half minutes because i was naive and thinking that oh if i get down to four it'll be okay because i didn't even leave time for laughter so you can tell i was kind of rushing through because i would cut off the laughter and like yeah. proceed because i was super nervous about being cut off the stage or something <laughs> one of those hooks that come through you know so yeah so there you go stay tuned yeah. if you're interested to hear my <laughs> one act show 
Now, before we go to break, I do have a question. Sure. Now, I'm not <gasps> as versed in Harry Potter. Oh, sure. What house am I? Yeah, because Amanda uh, – so Brett's Brett is Gryffindor. Okay. Does he, he proclaim? So Amanda says she's <laughs> Ravenclaw. Amanda says she's a Ravenclaw. They're like they're both like you're Hufflepuff. I'm like, okay, where would you fall in this? Yeah, I haven't taken the quiz, but I believe that I would be a Ravenclaw. All right. So that's my cool. thinking. But this reminds me because I want to start a new thing, and you're the perfect person to start it with. You know mm. how we've been doing Team Raisin, Team Grape. Yes. Okay. Well, we're at an end with that, and Thank I think God. Team Raisin won. But no. uh, yes, it did. And now I would like to do Team Pancake. Or okay. team waffle. Oh, this is tough. Yep. This is tough because <laughs> because I do both. I, I every Sunday morning I make either pancakes or waffles. Usually pancakes. It is it narrowly <laughs> narrowly would be pancakes. Okay. Team They're pancakes. very narrow. Not like, you know, not not in the not in the I hate raisins oh type of thing. Sure. I love both. Okay. If given a choice, I think I would go to pancakes over waffles. Okay, sounds good. Just so you're our first one. by a narrow margin, especially <laughs> if the pancakes have like chocolate chips or blueberries. Oh, I love both. The of villa. Those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, when we come back, we're going to review just Backroll eighty three, aka thirty one. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring "Hit Me with Your Best Shot" by Pat Benatar. <gasps> Woo, Pat Benatar. <laughs>
Welcome back. This is Backroll number 31, a.k.a. 83, Old Enemies Part 2. Writer Margaret Scott, penciler Paul Pelletier, inker Norm Rapmund, and colorist the beautiful Jordi Belair. Gotham. Backroll fights a purse-snatching green goop person taking out her aggression at not being able to do much about the conflict with her dad, her trouble with Jason Bard, and not being able to tell Alejo what she knows. The next day at the Alejo campaign headquarters, Babs is on database duty when Bard passes by. Babs gives him the cold shoulder, kind of wished there were icicle speech bubbles. (laughs) But Jason tries to explain he was with the thugs at the rally in order to find the person behind Cormorant. Alejo appears during the argument and tells Babs to be a team player. Jason tells Izzy to put Babs on the list for tonight's fundraiser, and Izzy does, but grudgingly. She didn't even need to because, well, Babs doesn't show up, but Batgirl does, doing audio and visual surveillance on the party. She spots a flash and prevents Cormorant from making a sniper shot or taking a sniper shot and grapple hooks over to his building. A fight ensues, and while Batgirl gets off some hits, Cormorant knocks her out, saying he was under orders not to kill her. Upon waking, Batgirl collects some blood from the floor in order to find out his ID. At the clock tower, Babs is doing some analysis on the blood when Izzy calls, asking Babs to explain her absence. A bruised Barbara explains she got food poisoning from the shrimp puffs, which I guess Izzy buys, but it doesn't actually make sense because Babs was the only one to get sick. No one else is saying that they got sick from it. But anyways, the blood analysis comes back as Edward Wells, which is shocking to no, you know, previous Batgirl fan. New to the contract killer game, he washed out of the military for enjoying war a bit too much. And speaking of, Wells actually gets a call from the boss as we switch scenes, and he is told that he must complete his mission. Batgirl plays the odds and goes to the Moore campaign headquarters and finds Cormorant threatening Moore. Shocking. Another fight ensues and Cormorant throws a copier machine, which thinking about the copiers at my workplace, I don't – he must be really strong. He throws it I don't and, know, but I think a few of us would love to throw copier machines oh because they just frustrate us to no end. Sure. The, the jamming. The beeping yeah. when it jams. The impact of which, the copier, of course, Backroll takes. He walks away and it's a last warning for both Moore and Backroll. Surprise, surprise, Moore is not the boss. In fact, Cormorant was there to threaten Moore to drop the support of this Blackgate deal which is a joint resolution with Alejo to shut down the prison and build a new supermax farther from the city. Moore decides he's going to back off the resolution instead of winding up dead. Back at Alejo headquarters, Babs completes an analysis of the donation database and discovers how random it is. But she's interrupted when Alejo tells them she's scheduled an interview with Gotham Nightly about Blackgate. Bard is against it, but he's still her security, and she can't count on the police. Bard encourages Babs to come also to the interview in order to get ready for her digital help, which is basically email blast people about the interview once it's live. The next day, Bard goes through the security necessities, but misses the shady figure behind him in the elevator with some blood spatter on his shirt. To be continued. I did want to, before we get into this, uh, Mm -hmm. Margaret Scott tweeted something out. There are two tweets that I'll get to from her. I took pictures of them. One of them was about her writing process that she actually changed for this particular issue. Mm 
So she says, hey, Batgirl fans, I thought I'd give you a little inside baseball on this week's issue, which is 31. It's actually the start of us writing plot style, where you describe several pages with no panel breaks and minimal dialogue instead of full script where everything's broken down. It's like the old Marvel method, basically. I guess. So then she says, why? Well, it's something Paul had enjoyed doing in the past, and he'd stretched himself so much as an artist on our first arc, and he was great to start, that I figured I should stretch myself as a writer, too. Ironically, plot style is a lot more work for both of us. Paul had a lot more choices to make in terms of panels, layout, and pacing, while I had to write the script twice, once so Paul knew what he was drawing, and again to condense the lettering so everything fits smoothly. On the other hand, I think this has pushed us both to do some of our best work yet, and it feels like a truer meld of both our talents. So there you go. Same characters, same writer, same artist, different technique. Hopefully an ever more Babs-worthy product. I hope you agree. So just some interesting insight into, yeah, that process. Yeah, so I guess it's just, I mean, is it text-heavy? No, no. I mean, how would you? I don't think it's text-heavy. Explain it potentially. Oh well, I mean her the that process. How would you explain that process to someone not in the comic? No. Oh, the the one the plot process. Yeah. Basically, like I give you, uh, you're I'm, I'm the writer, you're the artist. I give you an outline of what happens in the issue, um, or some like a synopsis or an outline of what happens in the issue or on the pages. You draw that, and then what I do go is go back in and fill in the words where appropriate. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I want to say, and this is something that I believe Stanley and Jack Kirby developed. Okay. Back in the early '60s, when they were doing like all the Marvel books, and or most of the Marvel books, and um, I, I think it was at the time it was more efficient than doing scripting, or it was just the way they worked, or something. And it, I think it, uh, and it just sim- sound very similar to what I understand was the Marvel method, whereas whereas DC was known for your straight up script, and then the then the artist takes that with it and everything. Okay. So I, I may be simplifying and I may be talking at a turn here, but from what I understand, that's basically what she sounded like she was describing. How do you think it turned out in this issue? <clears throat> I didn't. I wouldn't have even noticed, to be completely honest with you. I mean, I, I thought I liked the pacing of the issue. Hey, look, character beats Grant. Because <laughs> um, I'm flipping. I, I, I downloaded it from Comixology, and I have the um, – so I'm flipping through the digital copy right now. And, and um, Pelletier, like – I've loved Paul Pelletier's art from way back when he was doing um, Green Lantern in uh, like the mid-90s. And so he's been around for years now, and um, I've always been a fan of his art. So, and he's just, he does action. He kind of has like an Alan Davis feel to him in some, in some ways. Uh, I see a little bit of like Tom Grummet in there too. And I'm like, it's just, it, it, uh, so that's the type of art that always just works for me anyway. And he does action really, really well. It's like really fluid. Um, He pays attention to the details and the scenes and everything. So just, I think, for an artist like him who really knows comics and, and is like a really good comic artist, putting the art out front like that is, is a really, really good way to do it. But if it is not efficient for the two of them, then they can do whatever they want. I think that I think that Paul Pelletier either way would be would be excellent. Sure. But uh, I, so yeah. I think I think it really does work. I appreciate the fact that she says, you know, it was it was, it was a lot of work, but it's mm-hmm. it stretched them. I, I think it's great that someone is willing to be stretched in their art and to not go the easy route. And yeah. I, I think it's a, a very successful issue. So yeah. yeah, keep I, on. I think it's 
I think it's cool that you have a working relationship with somebody like that too. Like you can turn to them and say, Hey, let's try it this way this time. And they're like, okay, and we'll give it a shot. And then they can kind of like reassess and be right. like, Oh, maybe that didn't work out as well as we thought it would. I mean, that, that shows some real professionalism. It shows a really, really good working relationship. I hope it's something that keeps up. Absolutely. Well, I always like to pick out favorite panel or pages. Did you have a particular panel of art from this issue that you really liked? I have almost like two pages in a sense, like two or three panels go from page. I think hold on, I just, I have to tap to find out which page this is 13 and 14. And in 13, we see the Comrade punching her and then she's laying on the floor with like her nose is all bloody. And the next panel she's up and she's holding her face to her head, her hand to her face, but her yeah. nose is still bloody. But then on the next page on 15, is it 15? I guess uh, 14 I mean, on page 14, 13, on page 14, yeah. on page 14, where she's in the lab, the clock tower, you see the bruises on her face, which yeah. I think are probably courtesy of the colorist. Not that I enjoy seeing women bruised, but I think the fact that she was, he beat the crap out of her and you see the, the after effect of that the next morning, because you are going to be bruised and beaten up no matter who you are. Men are going to be the same way, but it's not overdone in that sort of comically bad black eye way. You oh, know, like yeah. she doesn't look too beat up. I thought that was a really well done artistic touch for the story's sake. The fact that she, she even mentions the fact that like, she, you know, hiding the bruises, calmer beaten to my face. Like, you know, where she's like, where are you? You know? And it's just, I think it was, um, <laughs> that was, it was realistic. Yeah. And it was, it was a, it was a subtle little touch to the fact that even later on when she's back in the office, there's still a couple of marks on her face. So just yeah. credit to the artist for that. I thought that was a really, really well done sequence because of the nature of the, of the fight. Yeah. It does seem like she's got some rapid healing, like Spider-Man style though. Mm -hmm. I feel like even the next day it would look pretty bad, but maybe we can assume she's putting on some makeup and it doesn't, it's, it's tamer. Yeah. But I would in, say uh, that. in the page uh, that you were talking about the, the one before her looking through, I really like the panel of her looking at that blood where it's the close up mm -hmm. on her face. And of yeah. course, yeah, she's messed up, but looking through there, cause it's just, I, I think this issue had a good balance of fighting and showing her physical prowess and her detectiving and her intelligence. Mm -hmm. well, the so Q-tip on the panel before that is a really cool yeah. touch too. So just doing some CIA, CSI, yeah, yeah. sorry, CSI, CSI yeah. stuff is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, the big character here is the Cormorant. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because we met for a Covfefe recently and I said, the Cormorant mm -hmm. appeared. And you said, that was that was a deep dive. And I thought, really? Is it a deep dive for her? But it's true for people who aren't, you know, avid Barbara Gordon fans and might be just like a DC Comics fan. Yes, the Cormorant would be a pretty deep dive. But I did want to talk about his design because in the past he almost yeah. looked – he absolutely had military. But he almost had that scout captain hat on with the C – and so now we've really oh, like a green beret type yeah. of thing. Okay. Uh, you know, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, mm -hmm. those hats that the kids were wearing at the beginning, oh, like a ranger yes. hat kind of okay, thing. Yeah, he yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. had a ranger hat. Okay. 
So here he's more, I would say he's more threatening at first glance. And uh, his camo is interesting because it's almost as if he's expecting blood to splash back out of him because it's gray with red. So if there is any blood, you can't really tell if it's part of his gear or not. I think obviously modernized, you know, I think mm-hmm. there are more metal bits and, and things like that. The dark. What do you think about his his redesign? If you can recall what he looked like in the past, but, or just what do you think about how the Cormorant looks now? I don't recall very much of what he looked like in the past. I know he didn't. I was going to ask you, did he always look like this? This oh. is very. There's something very Deathstroke about this, oh. and there's he would he would fit very well in a GI Joe comic book. It's very G.I. Joe, a real American hero. It could be it could be very much he could be working for Cobra or something. You know, that 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 sort of design works. Uh it's not a bad look. It is, but like I said, it's it's a little derivative, but at the same time, I don't know, I like it. It's it's not, you know, it it it, it makes sense, you know, based on what he does for a living. It's, you know, very it's super villain mercenary type of thing. What do you think so. about his – like what threat level would you give this particular character reading this issue? Do you think he's mm. – I mean is, is he going to give her a run for her money? We saw that here. But you know, is he going to last a, a good arc? Would you put him at, at a high level uh, of her rogues? What do you think about that? I think that he has the potential to be that in that he – I take it he's a paid – that he is a mercenary. Yeah. So like he's not after her. He is he is under contract, so he could be kind of like like eventually will become the character who like you know people will go to to you know when they know she might be involved or something or like he'll keep turning up because he'll run in the same crime circles that she is trying to take down or something like that. So I could see that he he's a recurring villain that comes up because he's been hired by somebody bigger than him. To, to do something. Okay. Um, and perhaps it's not like the stupid thing of like, you know, why do they keep hiring this guy? She keeps taking him down. It's the, every time he comes up against her, he's gaining some sort of knowledge of like how she works and stuff. So it becomes a, like he becomes harder and harder to defeat every time. Sure. Cause he learns like, you know, if you give that to the character, I think he'd be like a really cool character. It's like this guy again, you know, I'll take him down easily. It's like, no, you know, I've learned from last time. And the fact that he, he I don't think he has superpowers unlike uh-huh. Deathstroke who like, you know, who, who has superpowers in a sense. So the fact that they're kind of matched up evenly and that neither of them has any powers, they're just very, very skilled combatants and he's a sharpshooter. Yeah. I think, I like it. I like it. It also, also, it's it's it being that the callback to the old villain. It's a character and a villain that is exclusively hers. Right. So she's not taking on Deadshot, for instance. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to find think of of an equivalent Batman character, and Deadshot's the one that I can think of. So she's not taking on Deadshot here. So she's got her own villain, and he's very much a type of character like that. And there's like a million of these mercenaries running around the DCU. So, yeah, I, I kind of like I kind of like him. It's it's a it's a good character. Yeah, and I'm glad you know it's not an easy fight for her. No, yeah, yeah. both times. So she does get in her hits, but it's yeah, it's hard. I did ask, of course, because well, when when Barbara was number one, she wasn't shocked at the name Cormorant, researching him, not ringing any bells. So I asked over Twitter, Margaret Scott, what went into her decision about giving him a clean slate with the DCU and not 
having that history intact. And she said that it will become clear as we keep reading. Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty cool. So I guess we'll we'll see what that means. Yeah. So I believe that you read 30. And in 30, I did. there was, of course, a bit of a fight between Barbara and her father. Here her father is absent, but that conflict is still in the back of her mind because that's mm-hmm. that's one of the things that she's taking her aggression out on that goop guy. Do you mm-hmm. have any thoughts on this? And it seems like it's going to get worse given solicitations that are coming out uh, that, that there might be some sort of rift between Barbara and her father. Any thoughts on a conflict between Barbara and Jim? All right, so just clearing things up, this continues the continuity from the New 52. Y- yes. Right. So we're 83 issues in now? <laughs> Yes. And he still does not know. No. I really Even hope in Margaret 80, Scott. In 80, remember yeah, how close I, they were? Yeah, I really hope Margaret Scott resolves that yeah. and that he know, that he finds out or that he reveals that he knows. You know, it's just because it's getting tired. I like the conflict between the two of them and they could have a conflict over ideals and they could have conflict over business and justice and all the things that they're arguing over. But at some point there has to be a revelation here. It's because he's not Bruce. Bruce can go be Bruce and Batman and stuff. This is his daughter, you know, so let's, let's have this revealed and let's see how this plays out. You could have the same fights between the two of them, but I think it would add another one. Layer. Do you think that maybe it's an editorial mandate that Jim needs to not know? I wouldn't be surprised if it was. So it might be, for all I know. Okay. And she won't tell you. So yeah, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> until until after she's, she would reveal it after she had left the title. Oh yeah. You know, but yeah, it's, it's something that she probably can't talk about right now. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was an editorial okay. mandate. Yeah. One person that I feel like might know that Barbara is Batgirl is Jason Bard. Mm. And the reason why is this. Number one, inviting her to the party Mm -hmm. on the the guest list and not really questioning why she's not there. And then telling her to come to the interview. Do you think that he might know that she and Batgirl are one and the same? Based on what you're just saying, that's really good evidence. And I'm going to agree with you. Okay. (laughs) Or that he has an idea that she, maybe he's not certain, but like he knows like something's up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, yeah. I would say yes. What would be the ramifications of, of him knowing her identity? Do you think? I don't know. She doesn't entirely trust him. She doesn't like him very much. I think she'd get scared. I don't think she'd quit, but I think, it would throw her into kind of a cautious, I have to tie up the loose ends. How many other people know, like, you know, maybe not a panic, but she'd certainly, you know, it would certainly be alarming to her. Yeah. This is not your mother's Jason Bard. So he's not on the up and up. He's (laughs) more of a, I wouldn't say he's a villain necessarily, but he's not a great guy. So yeah, having him know her identity would, I think, He's kind problems. of a slime ball. Yeah, yeah I, I imagine he would try to use it to his advantage. But if this is a way to maybe make his characterization a little bit better, because he is trying. Yeah, I mean, he's telling the readers that he's trying to do the right thing. Then yeah. I don't know if it'll be a bit of a character switch. Yeah. 
At one point, Barbara is called by Lizzie a mochaccino liberal. And I wondered, what do you think that is exactly? There was (laughs) – this goes – this goes – that's a callback to – it was, I want to say, 2004. And these ads ran against – I think they were ads against John Kerry – Where they had these old white people in like whatever talking about how he, you know, how the people who follow him are like Starbucks latte sipping liberals and things like that. So I think it's just trying to call out this stereotype of, of like, you know, this odd like liberal elite stereotype, you know. Liberals love the four dollar coffee and thing like it's just, it's it's a it's actually a clever little political <laughs> like you know jab at political yeah, of course yeah p- politics mudslinging stupidity yeah. so okay I just wondered what that was I wondered if it meant like they have no which I think she goes on to say like no actual investment in the things at stake and they're mm-hmm. just there for whatever like they'll say they're a liberal but they're not really. Yeah. Doing anything about it kind of thing. Yeah. That'll work too. Yeah. yeah. Well, any other thoughts on this particular issue or the arc so far? The ending is very TV. You know, like oh, the sure, cliffhanger. Yeah, that's yeah, very yeah. much a like, you know, a next dun, time dun, dun, dun. on yeah. Batgirl. You know, like, yeah. you know, it's just that, that last scene before the end or whatever. I liked it. Um, it was, you know, I think it was paced well. I really, I've always loved Paul Pelletier's art. I hate the mask i'm sorry i love the cape i love i've always loved the gray and gold and blue batgirl costume i hate the mask that piece is it the fact that it goes up to the through the hair or the fact that it's it's so open with the eyes it's it's the open with the eyes and the thing i just it just doesn't it looks it looks it reminds me of Anne Hathaway's awful cat, Catwoman costume in the Dark Knight oh, Rises. Oh, you didn't like her Catwoman costume? I didn't like the, the ears. They just it looked it looked. But the dumb. ears were her goggles. Well, that worked, but at the same time, it just looked. <laughs> it, I you know, and this is me. This is my you know my older my love for like Michelle Pfeiffer and Batman Returns, Ooh. like the Catwoman costume. Sure. You know, like you know, and Anne Hathaway is nothing to is not ugly in any way. But it was just, you know, and the, and the, the, the cat suit worked. It's just, yeah. But I just, I've never, I just, every time I've seen this, I've been like, but Peltier makes it work. Peltier makes it work because the hair looks really good, you know? Yeah. I think it was the, because uh, because I downloaded this from Comixology, I got the. Um, the variant. The variant and the variant this time around actually had the Burnside it costume. Did, yeah, Art Germ. With yeah, Art, Ar- Art Germ. And I'm not the hugest fan of Art Germ's stuff. Interesting. Uh, well, I don't like his Supergirl for some reason. I, I don't know why I don't like, I think he's a good artist. I just, every, every time I see one of his Supergirls, I'm like, not, ah, not my thing. I like this though. I've, I love the Burnside costume. I think it's the other reason. I really oh love gosh. the Burnside costume. Yeah. I love the whole Burnside Batgirl. I, apparently I didn't realize that like people didn't like that listening to previous episodes of the show and, and authorities on the topic. I was like, wait, that's not the right direction because I, I love Gail Simone, but I couldn't stand that run on Batgirl. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think I, I've been in general out of the 
the pop the popular opinion. But I was like, but I love the Burnside run. It was fresh. I I really enjoyed it. I was like, this is this is fun. There were there were some missteps, you know. Sure. There's always going to be when you're when you're doing a month to month book over the course of a couple of years. But like, I didn't realize that like that was the wrong way to do Batgirl or something. I was like, I okay. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's the wrong way. I yeah. think that's what she needed at the time. Yeah. It needed to be um, completely different from yeah. like, dark, 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 grim, grim, grim. So. But look, I just want I want to pull up issue thirty. Because the the art in thirty is good, really good as well. I'm to the point where I might just buy the next couple of issues just to finish out the storyline. Sure. Because I think this was really, really well done. the The variant cover on thirty was really cool looking, but I think it's because of the eyes. Because she's just kind of coming in and like looking at you with the the mouth open, like the eyes are like really wide, and that kind of makes it look look pretty good. But I couldn't Some remember. people thought that that looked like Lord. I guess, um, you know, it kind of did. So I know I'm wondering. You don't care for her? Gosh, I find her boring. <laughs> I just find her very boring. It is uh, actually when you listen to her music, it does seem like she stays in like the like the same thing, and then she might change. Royalist was a good time. Was a good song. It's just I heard it too many times, but because um, it got played to death but sure. but you know, just for the most part i was like no i, I like um I, I really like the art the story is just this is this is some of the best and you know because i i didn't like the gelsamon run very much in fact i dropped it after like issue zero <laughs> um yeah it's how early i dropped it yeah. um i read all of burnside and loved it got maybe the first two issues of the hope larson run and just it was like no and then read what you you and i talked about sure. and this I may dip in and out of this. I this is this is really good. I just I, it seems like she's got a really. I mean, you're the, you're more of an authority on this than I am, and I'm not saying that snarkily. I mean, I'm I truly mean that. Like, I feel that she's got a good handle on Barbara as a character. Yeah. In a way that previous writers didn't, and and I just love Paul Pelletier's art. So it's it. I think this is. I, I hope this sells well because it's it's really well put together. And the fact that she drew from way back, Comoran, back in the 70s, 80s, is, is I think, a testament, hopefully, that she's doing her, her research. Because that's not necessarily true of, of all the people who have handled mm-hmm. Barbara. So, Well, yeah. what grade would you give this out of 10? I'm going <laughs> to base grade a 9. I'm going to bump it up to a 9.5 because the previous issues that you and I have covered – where they weren't so great, like the difference between the, the improvement from the last run in this title is so big in my mind yeah. that I think it deserves that other nine, that 9.5. Okay. I'm going to give it an 8.5, but I think it's a really solid issue. Like I said, I think it's well-rounded. You've got action, you've got detectiving, and it's not easy to guess what is going on because you feel like you're led in one direction and then you find out, oh, wait, Moore's not in charge. And then mm-hmm. there are just some big questions about why would someone order Cormorant not to kill Batgirl? So there's something about that. And then, like I said, the the Jason Bard may be knowing her identity. Who knows? So I look forward to seeing how this continues. Yeah. Well, next is Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosities. Uh, that's like Dick Grayson giving a valentine to Barbara Gordon and Batman getting on one knee for Catwoman. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Christmas Cornucopia of Curiosity segment. Thank you very much, listeners, for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I am very glad to be with you. 
Today, I'm just looking at Batman Adventures number 15. No Nightwatch segment today, as no new issue has dropped at the time of this recording since the last podcast. Batman Adventures number 15 was cover dated December 1993 and had a cover price of $1.25. The story was entitled Badge of Honor and was written by Kelly Puckett, Mike Parabek was the penciler, Rick Burchett was the inker, and Rick Taylor was the colorist. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This story was reprinted in The Batman Adventures Volume 2, which came out in 2015. Act 1. Officer Down. Three of Rupert Thorne's lackeys, with guns drawn, are in Commissioner Gordon's apartment. They inform him that they know an officer named Miller, who's working undercover and infiltrated Thorne's mob, has now been captured. They want all the info Miller found within 24 hours, then he will be returned. After a fracas, Gordon agrees, in order to buy time to find and rescue Miller. Gordon tells Batman his predicament. It's not known how Thorne found out, and Gordon has to consider someone within the GCPD could have ratted him out. Gordon asks Batman to keep a close eye on Thorne while he works on finding Miller on his own. Gordon goes through Miller's files, and he finds a lead, a member of Thorne's crew named Tony Weasel. Act 2. Cop Killer. Gordon goes to Weasel's club, and after he tells him that his name is pronounced Weasel, Gordon finds out that Miller is being held in a Southside warehouse. Gordon attempts to rescue Miller, and despite a valiant effort, Gordon gets captured himself. Meanwhile, a gangster named O'Leary from Detroit meets Thorne, and the meeting is interrupted when Thorne is informed of Gordon's capture. Thorne asks O'Leary to come with him to assure him that he can handle Batman. Act 3. Code Dead. Gordon asks Thorne how he knew Miller was a cop. Miller says he refused to rough up a numbers runner when ordered because he was young. So he let him go, but in doing so, the runner went to Thorne. Thorne draws his gun on Gordon. Just then, O'Leary, now revealed to be Batman, takes out Thorne from behind, as well as all the assorted gunmen. Thorne manages to pull a gun on Miller, but Gordon pulls a gun on Thorne. Smash cut to Gordon and Batman shaking hands. The end. I don't have a lot by way of comments. This is the second issue in a row where Batman is not the focal character. A lot of the story is told from Gordon's point of view, and we read his internal thoughts in separate caption boxes. That story element really enhanced the story. We see the weight of concern that Gordon has for the officer, and he assumes full responsibility for his safety. Gordon addresses his own age, whether he's able to handle the rigors of the job and succeeding in his goal. The artwork was superior in this issue as well. The cover was particularly striking, with Gordon tied to a chair surrounded by ten men. Gordon is a harried and old cop. You really get a good handle on the character here. And though Batman saved the day in the end, the scene where Gordon wanted to handle this on his own and Gordon calling the shots was quite respectful and poignant. Solid story and solid artwork, and I'm giving Batman Adventures number 15 8.5 out of 10 bats. I did get some feedback on this segment. I want to give a shout-out to Laurel on Twitter at MountainFlower1, who chimed in with the following, with respect to Batman Adventures number 13, The Batman and Talia Story. Hi, Chris. I completely agree how impressively the art is telling the story without words. I can practically hear the theme song swelling. Also, in issue 13, the Batman Talia kiss was well illustrated. Sometimes comic book kisses look awkward, or just don't ring true, but it certainly works here. I was glad to see the montage of Bruce and Talia in Paris. It gave the reader time to feel how much these characters enjoy being with one another. Makes the ending that much more tragic. Well, first off, thank you very much for writing in, Laurel, with your comments. Please accept my apologies with not having this ready for my last segment. I just got a new computer and was in a bit of a rush in recording my last segment for this show. 
you made some great observations here. Yes, some comic book kisses do look awkward, and I'm with you on the montage sequence, and it made the ending quite tragic indeed. Great points and observations. Listeners, be sure to check out Laurel's other insights on the Birds of Prey podcast, and you can follow their feed at Feather on Foes on Twitter with Mark and Ashford, as well as the Huntress podcast, and that feed is at Huntress Podcast. Great stuff. I want to give a shout-out to Lane on Batman Books, the Dark Knight in Prose podcast. There's also great stuff over there. Listeners, be sure to check out Stella on the Required Reading podcast. I'd also like to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out Warlord Worlds, Trick or Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, Convention Correspondence, Podcasts. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter at BTO and Batbooks, BTO as in Batgirl the Oracle, and Batbooks as in Batbooks for Beginners, another podcast that I can be found on that I co-host with Jerry Green, where we examine and review trade paperbacks and collected material of Batman or related characters. You can also find us talking about independent comics and whatnot on the Professor Frenzy Show. Please try that podcast. I can also be found on a new podcast called Trust Your Cape. That's a role-playing game podcast, and the feed is over at the Gal Walks Into a Comic Shop podcast. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast itself on the TBU website, and please leave us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and their fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your support. If any of you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And, again, thank you for your support. Who does the Joker recruit to draw his new comic book? Can Batman rescue the kidnapped artist from the perils at a miniature golf course? Can Batman rescue himself from the clutches of the Joker's peril and fend off sales from a competing comic book? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these jazzy, jittery, jolly, jovial, jelly-filled jabs will be judiciously juxtaposed, jested, and justified jubiously next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. Next is my anime watch list where I give you a movie and a series that I think is pretty good. And I mentioned Lupin the Third before about a skis or a, what are those called? Oh, like a lecher? kind of person aren't they like a creepy old man a lecher a lech a lech isn't it yeah kind of a creepy person okay he he is a little lupon certainly he goes for the girls but he also has a great heart which you which you get to see so i'm currently watching lupon the third part five which came out in 2018 and right now it just has the japanese with the english subtitles and i was a little disappointed for once because i do like the voice actor for lupon in the English, but oh well. So in the new series, he's going to travel to France, the home of his grandfather and namesake. And that's all that my anime watch list give, gave me for that. But the film is a classic from Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki. It is, or just Miyazaki might not be Ghibli yet. Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. It came out in 1979, and it's about an hour and 40 minutes. After a successful robbery leaves famed thief Lupin the Third and his partner Jigen with nothing but a large amount of fake money, the so-called goat bills, he decides to track down the counterfeiter responsible and steal any other treasures he may find in the castle of Cagliostro, including the damsel in distress 
address he finds in prison there. However, as usual, Inspector Zanagata is hot on his trail. So, yeah, I think they're, they are fun characters. I really like the the three guys, you know, Jigen and Goyamon and, and Lupin. Zanagata, how Lupin calls him Pops, and he's always, like, right on his tail, and he might have him, but then Lupin gives him the slip. And then, of course, you have Fujiko Mine, who's, like, this sex symbol. And I did actually watch the Fujiko Mine series that they had, which, whoo! Never seen so much nudity in my life in the anime. but So I don't know if I necessarily recommend that. But both of them, I think I would say that they're new anime viewer approved. And the Castle of Cagliostro has both an English dub and the original Japanese. So there are my anime recommendations for this time. And now finally, the mm-hmm. only reason Tom comes on this particular show. Yes. It's literature recommendations. Tom, you have the honor of going first. Hey, I am looking at my Goodreads list um, for 2019. Uh, I got a few. I'm going to skip over the books that we will be covering on, uh, or book at least at this point, that we're going to be covering on required reading. But I have actually two of the, I have one, two, three, four, five books, and two of them I can do at once, be- and they both apply in some way to this podcast because they are trade paperbacks. Whoa. They are Batman, the Dark Knight Detective Volume 1 and Volume 2. This is reprinting Detective Comics starting in with the first issue of the post-crisis Batman era, um, which is the beginning of the Mike W. Barr, Alan Davis run all the way up through um, the late 500s, which is the Alan Grant, John Wagner, and art by the late Norm Brayfogel. It's great stuff. The only thing that's not in it, uh, that's in volume one and volume two, volume two takes us to, up to about like maybe issue 588, 89. The only thing that is not in it that you would have to seek out on your own is that they do not collect the storyline Batman year two with the Reaper and everything. Um, I didn't mind that. I've had Batman year two in trade since like I was like 1990, 1991 when I was first collecting comics, I bought it at, uh, I asked for it. I got it for Christmas one year. I got it from a uh, Walden books in the Smith Haven mall. Wow. But, but yeah, so I've had, I've had year one and year two for like almost 30 years. So I, I didn't mind that. But if, if you're a completist and you want, you have you should track down a trade paperback copy of year two, but it's Mike W. Barr, Alan Davis, Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogel. It's, and it's, there's, like I said, the volume one is uh, starts with the Barr and Davis stuff. It ends on the, the beginning of the Grant and Brayfogel stuff. And then, um, volume two is all Alan Grant, John Wagner, Norm Brayfogel. It's just, it's a great, great Batman. Um, it, the companion is the they're reprinting all the Batman stuff from from then uh, the kind of crappy Max Allen Collins run the Jim Starlin run into the or the Jim Aparo art and stuff like that which is also good but that's that's where the main Batman stuff was like Death in the Family Year Three you know those storylines sure. um, this a lot of this is just like two to three part things where he takes on like Scarface and the Ventriloquist um, there's a Joker Catwoman story in there. Um, it's and some of it's just this sort of and a lot of solo Batman stuff. It's really really good stuff. So I, I recommend that. You can want to do one of yours next. No, you can do all of yours. And I'll <laughs> oh, okay. Do both of them. All right. Really briefly, I read uh, I've read Animal Vegetable Miracle: A Year of Food Life, which is by Barbara Kingsolver about how her and her family uh, moved to a farm in Virginia from their home in Arizona and how they 
did nothing but eat the only the food they grew for a year. So it was just about the local food movement, and it was really fascinating. I would check that out. It is a little bit of a slog to get through because it's it's very, very detailed. I read The City of Mirrors by Justin Cronin. That is book three of the Passage trilogy. If you've been seeing on Fox, there is a, a TV series called The Passage, which is, starts with the first book of that trilogy, starring uh, Zach Morris. Zach Morris? Yeah, Mark Park Gosler is in it. Oh. But The Passage is this po- this apocalyptic story about um, a, an experiment gone horribly wrong where the human race is turned into these like vampire type of creatures. And it's it, uh, The City of Mirrors is the third one. And it's uh, the whole trilogy was really, really good. Cronin is a really detailed writer. Does well, uh, but the two the two books that I'm I'm in the middle of reading one of them and the, I just finished the other one. It took me about a day and a half to read. The writer Grady Hendrix um, is a horror writer, and he wrote this book called My Best Friend's Exorcism, and it is a <laughs> it's if you took Heather's and mixed it with The Exorcist. Oh my. So it's about teenage girls in the late eighties, and one of them gets possessed by it like demonically possessed and it's just it's so it was really fun to read it's just and the paperback edition of the book looks like an old vhs cassette box gosh it's just i and that's where i that's where i first saw it in barnes and noble i was like what is this and i read it and i was like this is brilliant and it was it was a it's a it's funny it's it's scary and gory in places it's just classic like really good horror movie and stuff and he has a book out that i'm reading right now it's a non-fiction book it's called paperbacks from hell and it is a history of horror paperbacks from like the 70s up to the early 90s so all of these like trashy horror novels you now would find in like used bookstores and yard sales and stuff you know everything like satanic cults and killer kids and pets and stuff. And it's just this exhaustive history of like all of these cheap novels that, that people would buy and stuff. And it's really fascinating. And I'm not, I'm not a huge horror person. I don't read a lot of horror, but I was like, really just like, this really looks interesting. And I got it for Christmas and I'm just enjoying the heck out of it. It's, it's fun as it's, it's fun as hell as, as we'd say. So, those are my lit recs, or at least that's what I've been reading lately, okay. in addition to a ton of comics. Of course, so, yeah. A ton of back issues. <laughs> so I just have two, which one is the reason why I've only had two, and also I've been playing <laughs> some video games. So one of them is called Peace Like a River by Life Anger, I believe. A- Anger or Leaf Anger, who knows. Let's see here. Narrated by an asthmatic 11-year-old named Reuben Land, it's the story of Reuben's unusual family and their journey across the frozen badlands of the Dakotas in search of his fugitive older brother. Charged with the murder of two locals who terrorized their family, Davy has fled, understanding that the scales of justice will not weigh in his favor. But Reuben, his father Jeremiah, a man of faith so deep he has been known to produce miracles, and Reuben's little sister Swede follow closely behind the fleeing Davy. Now, this was one of those that was, it was hopped up a lot. It was whatever it's called, hyped. It was hyped a lot by people at the, uh, at school. And I didn't think it was as good as people were hyping it. It was so-so. I think it's very similar to To Kill a Mockingbird and feeling with this, you know, father and Swede is very much like Scout and, but it, it was, I, I think it deserves a read through for people. I would say that the last, 
11 pages were very powerful. But uh, that may seem like an insult, but actually it was it was really good at the end. And, but the main thing that I've been focusing on, and I literally finished it today during mm-hmm. one of my planning periods, it was Les Miserables by yes. Victor Hugo. So introducing one of the most famous characters in literature, Jean Valjean, the noble peasant in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Les Miserables ranks among the greatest novels of all time. This is from Amazon. In it, Victor Hugo takes readers deep into the Parisian underworld, immerses them in a battle between good and evil, and carries them to the barricades during the uprising of 1832 with a breathtaking realism that is unsurpassed in modern prose. Within his dramatic story are themes that capture the intellect and the emotions, crime and punishment, the relentless persecution of Valjean by Inspector Javert, the desperation of the prostitute Fantine, the amorality of the rogue <laughs> Thenardier, and the universal desire to escape the prisons of our own minds. Les Miserables gave Victor Hugo a canvas upon which he portrayed his criticism of the French political and judicial systems, but the portrait that resulted is larger than life, epic in scope, an extravagant spectacle that dazzles the senses, even as it touches the heart. Now, this might be a bit of a spoiler for Tom, since we're about to record this soon, actually. But this read much better than I was expecting, because I thought, this is going to be a slog. I can't, I don't know what it's going to be like. And then I started reading, I was like, oh, wait, this is completely like Count of Monte Cristo, where I went in thinking it was going to be horrible, and it's actually very delightful. So for right now, I think, the only author that I have trouble reading is Charles Dickens. But, you know, I'm yeah, okay. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Don Quixote was fine. Count was fine. Les Mis was fine. It's just, yeah, that one. And maybe Russian authors. I've only read Anna Karenina, so I'll have to try another one to see. But yeah, it reads really well. Yes, there are some tangents, yeah. but I was fully <laughs> engaged and I was following yeah. along. There are a couple characters that when we talk, I'll ask what the, their point was, like Maboof. But mm-hmm. other than that, I will, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. I very much enjoyed it and I recommend it, but it'll probably take you some time because it's, 1500 pages yeah. i started it on january 16th it is january it was february 6th today so i guess that's like 20 20 or so yeah. days and that's you know yeah yeah without getting too much into it either the plot of the novel flies yeah and you get engrossed in the characters even some of the tangents get really interesting because there are a lot of tangents but that there is um, yeah. i've read one russian novel which one was it? I read Warm Crime Peace? and I've read Crime and Punishment. Really, that's on my list. And uh, I read that back in college, and I remember enjoying it back in college. Okay. And that's that's on my list as well. For oh, well, it wasn't on my list in for for required <laughs> reading, but it's on my um, it's on my to bookshelf. Read. Yeah. So oh, it's on yeah. my you know it's and it's on my my poster, so it's on my kind of list in a sense. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. But I would I would recommend Crime and Punishment. From what I remember, I really enjoyed it. Okay. I might need a break of like some shorter novels before I go back into a huge one. Yeah, like a play or something. (laughs) Yeah. The next huge one I want to read actually is Vanity Fair. I've been interested in in Hmm. reading that. So maybe I'll do that. Well, remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolloracle at gmail.com. I guess our discussion today was about toxic masculinity in the Gillette commercial. So if you have any comments about that or (laughs) you can, I don't know if I'm opening up something, but yeah, you can email me. Go right ahead. Yeah. You can also, (laughs) you can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher, like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backrolloracle and follow the Batman universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. 
Support the Batman universe by subscribing to Patreon. And once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Stay tuned after the show for my little comedy set. And next month, I'll be by myself again. There will actually be two episodes in March. One will be some Birds of Prey, and then a second one will be a special that I shan't reveal yet. But thanks so much, Tom, for being on. It is always a delight, even when you invite yourself on. Yeah. Hey, um, Shag, <laughs> I'm looking now. Now, this is going to change because Chris's segment isn't in here and Stella's little thing and then the Zias' radio hour oh, and everything. Oh, my gosh. But the raw footage, footage of me and Stella, the raw recording is yeah. clocking in at two hours and 38 minutes. It's under the four that you commandeer her show for. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 2.30. That's pretty good. I think we, we, yeah. we did a good job there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, it's a school night, too. <laughs> that is also true. Yeah, I've been, my eye's been on the clock the entire time. Well, yeah. until next time. Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? So you start dating one another. Well, I'm being completely serious because you start dating one another. After graduation, you marry, you have children. The children go to Covenant. That's money in the bank. It's a sick plan that the business office has come up with. If you don't believe me, look at Chloe and Andrew, some of these seniors.
vouchers over at the faithful. I mean, gosh, we don't pray for them during our chat. there, but no one likes to talk about it. They're waiting for unsuspecting victims so that they can fly over and poo on them. There's one person in here that it's happened to, and it's Mr. Lee. Now, I, he, was, he was here. He was on a picnic bench. Now, I thought, oh, that dear man, does he need consolation, shoulder to cry on? Absolutely not. He was overjoyed to be pooed on. And let me tell you what, because he was able to calculate. Uh, well, let's see. If the poo fell, uh, that would be per second per second. It came at about a 19-degree angle. Clearly, the vulture was going 12.2 miles per hour. But you know, that man, that poor man, he's probably super paranoid. Something's gonna happen again, he's gonna be pooed on. There's one thing that paranoids me here at Covenant, and it's the clacking of heels coming down the hall. I know that it's an administrator, I know it's, I like to call her the boss lady, Mrs. Miller herself. And I, when I hear that clack, 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 I've got about 15 seconds to actually pretend to be teaching. And she's She's gonna come right by. You know, when I first saw that woman, I was frightened and intimidated. There are three things about her that superbly intimidate me. One, the red lipstick. <laughs> Two, the coffee cup that never seems to leave her hand. She would sooner strike you down Old Testament style than put that down. And three, it's her height. I mean, for goodness sake, that woman is seven feet tall, but she still wears heels. Talking to her is like Jack climbing up the beanstalk to talk to a giant. Oh, hello, Mrs. Miller, how are you? Fee, five, four, Miss Bowman, have you met your Socratic seminar quota this week? Did you just say, um, expel? <laughs> but there is one delightful thing about that height advantage, because if I'm standing next to her, just so, the bird is gonna poo on her before it poos on me. It's 